I'm Radio Roger, and you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. W-A-P-G, it's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 356. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 222 in the Indigo Recording Studios in Sarasota, Florida. Today's show was recorded on the 2nd of January, 2019. In today's episode... Aviation news since the last show, your feedback, and this week's plane tale, bathtubs, potatoes, shoes, and flat irons. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 356 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover news in aviation and especially our favorite part, covering your wonderful feedback. And here to help me in that endeavor from our lakeside studio in South Carolina, a doctor, a skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And also joining us from across the pond in his recording studio in the English countryside, a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, England, Captain Nick. Happy New Year! Hi, everybody. It's the first show of a new year. Isn't this fantastic? It is. And you know what? It's, so far, the best show in 2019. Setting the bar somewhere. (laughs) Setting the bar. The best accuracy record for any show in this year. That's right. Yeah, so right now I think we're right at 100%. Absolutely. Perfect. Almost. It won't be long. No, no, I know Before already... we dip below that. <laughs> shh, shh. They don't know about all the outtakes. No, no, no. And... I'm talking about since we've been recording for real. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, Nick's Have not we already in... screwed up? Nick's not in England, but that's okay. He's not. Oh, shoot. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> oh. I was okay. hoping you'd Well, then where the heck you? are you? <laughs> Have another bottle, Jeff. <laughs> I've only had a few sips. So couldn't, I can't blame it on the wine. So please tell me, please tell us, Nick, where the heck are you? Well, I, I'm in wonderful Miami, of course. Uh, I've been looking for those two blokes who, uh, you know, those vice cops who wore suits and T-shirts with their sleeves rolled up and Miami Vice. But I haven't been able to find them yet. I don't know where they where they work. Yeah, I think you're you're a couple of decades too late, I think. About yeah. 30 years too late. <laughs> but it's lovely and warm down here, I tell you what. It's gorgeous. Lovely and sunny, warm. So what am I doing? I'm sitting in my hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> well, punishment. yes, yeah. and that dedication that you have for this wonderful production 
is uh, is amazing. And uh, here's a toast to you. Thank you. I just think I'm slightly balmy. Cheers. 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 And let's see. Um, well, since we're talking to you and, and you're talking from Miami, uh, what has been happening? So, you know, it hasn't been that long since we've recorded the last show, only a few days, right? No. Or was I'm, it almost a week? <laughs> I've, I've trimmed my Christmas beard down to, uh, uh, you know, its normal sort of length. Uh, and uh, my Santa hat is back in the UK. Uh, decorations will be coming down shortly. So that's the end of Christmas. New Year's Eve was... Uh, a bit of a non-event. They called me saying, oh, Nick, you know you're coming on uh, standby at 6 a.m. in the morning. I said, yeah. They said, well, we need you for a flight at 10. And I said, well, hang on a minute. I'm on a four-hour standby. You called me at 6. No way am I going to get to the airport in, at, by 10, so you're going to have to delay the flight. And they said, oh, yeah, that's why we thought we'd phone you early, phone you tonight and let you know so you might be able to get up a bit early. <laughs> Yeah, okay, thanks, guys. So I was up at just after They're just four. trying to be helpful, Nick. Yeah, they are. They're just trying to. <laughs> so to stop the passengers from being delayed, I was up just after four. Uh, luckily, the roads were fairly clear. They were just about, you know, 50 drunks all weaving around the, <laughs> the motorways. <laughs> exactly. But it meant that I went to bed very early, missed any uh, concept of uh, a celebration. No alcohol passed my lips. I was woken momentarily by the fireworks at midnight, but soon got back to sleep again. And here I am in Miami. Okay, that's right. So you you were um, flying yesterday, January that's right. 1st. Okay. Yeah, I'm on a two-night uh, Miami. So I, I would normally, uh, on most of these flights, I'd, I'd do one night and go home again. But this mm -hmm. is a two-nighter. So I uh, came out with two first officers, uh, one of whom is passengering home tonight because apparently I only need one first officer to go home because with the tailwinds going home, the flight time is shorter. Um, he, oh, I thought they figured that you've done, you, you can make your way back to London, but yeah. you just might not make it to Miami on your own. You needed a little <laughs> exactly extra help right. for the navigation <laughs> away yeah, from yeah. home. Yeah, I, I know the way home. That's easy. Gets, <laughs> finding Miami is the hard bit. <laughs> so, uh, so that's uh, tomorrow afternoon, evening. Uh, we set back home, uh, set off back home, and get uh, in at about um, I don't know seven thirty in the morning, Friday. So there you go, four day trip. Well, excellent, and I'm um, glad that it worked out that we could record the show while you were on your off day in Miami. Oh, it's brilliant! Nearly had a disaster. The, uh, the oh, cable fine. for my computer had a fault in it. And about two hours before the show was uh, due to start, I was down in the Apple store uh, desperately trying to work out what the problem with my computer was. And mm. I'm, I'm telling this girl, uh, I've, got, I've got a really important um, video conference in a couple of hours. Can you fix it? And she said, oh, uh, the tech boys say the next appointment's in four and a half hours. <laughs> Can you mm. wait that long? I said, no, no. <laughs> Nope. Then you started having a fit. Did you yeah, start I taking did. your clothes off and I running did. around I, naked? Yeah, in the I Apple started store? shouting and screaming. And so she said, "No, no, calm down. Well, let's just take a look at the cable and things, and <laughs> let me put a one of my." And because we isolated the problem, and that was fine. So I've got new cable now, and everything works. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Glad that you're you're all equipped appropriately, so to speak. I've been equipped appropriately for many years. <laughs> yeah. That's what she said. I knew 
that as that was coming out of my mouth, I became, well, it was not the <laughs> right thing to say. Can't make references to no well, equipment. Equipment in general. <laughs> well, I don't really know how to transition, <laughs> Steph. Yes. What, what have you been up to? Uh, anything interesting since our before Christmas show? Oh no, it was after. It was Christmas, after wasn't Christmas. It? Yeah, before be, between before Christmas Year's. and yeah. New Year's. Yes. Yes. Um. Had another kind of low-key weekend last weekend. Um, we did finally make it to – I finally made it to the uh, NASCAR Hall of Fame, which is oh, here in Charlotte. It was actually pretty neat. Um, a lot of um, historical stuff, you know, with the uh, kind of the history of stock car racing here in the U.S. and especially the Southeast and, um, you know, old vehicles to look at, memorabilia type stuff, and um, simulators to drive. Oh. So, I mean, they're, you know – not full motion or anything, but they're they're pretty fun. the The tricky yeah. part is you end up driving against a group of people, and mm-hmm. most of them are not very good at driving the simulator. Um, <laughs> so you beat the pants off them, didn't you? I did win one of the uh, the races, but right at the very end, right before the time ran out, I had someone coming at me the wrong direction on the track, and I tried to move out of their way, and they moved right back into my way. Uh, I don't know how. How they did they up. manage that? I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Um, that that particular race about half the field didn't actually manage to complete one lap on the track wow so it was uh, interesting uh, but a lot Mm -hmm. of fun not flying related but uh you know get in a car go fast all fun stuff Uh and um let's see for new year's kind of a i had to work all day on new year's eve so didn't get home until kind of the usual time six six thirty at night um spent a few hours just watching TV and doing laundry and then, you know, watched the ball drop on TV at midnight. And then I actually went out for a run because it was almost 70 degrees outside and I wanted to get my first run of the year in. So four miles, came home, went to bed, got up, flew to Chicago for a uh, family get together for the day yesterday and flew back this morning, did a little bit of work this afternoon. And now I'm back here with you all. All right. So uh, I can't believe you ran just to get the first run of the morning. I mean, <laughs> I was done by 1 a.m. <laughs> well, I'm impressed. Five miles by 1 a.m. Four good. miles. Yeah, it was, it was pretty so, good. So did you say something about uh, going to Chicago? I did. Sorry. Did it break up there? No, it was just that uh, it just seemed like it, you didn't spend much time on it. So what exactly oh. was going on in uh, Chicago? No, it's a family get together that happens every year um, at one of my aunt and uncle's houses in the suburbs. And um, sometimes up to 50 people invade their house. And uh, it's because my uncle is a wonderful cook and the food is delicious. But in order to eat, you have to participate in the foosball tournament, which happens every year and has kind of taken on a life of its own, has its own Facebook page. Uh, There's a lot of smack talk that occurs throughout the year. And um, we won the first round, me and my partner, one of my cousin's kids. And then we were uh, very decidedly beaten in the second round. And did not advance beyond that, but came down to a good, uh, there was a good final match, um, between, uh, one of my cousins, his mom, my aunt and a couple of other relatives. So it was, it was fun to watch. Okay. Well, can't believe you lost it. Where was that fighting spirit? I know. And my, you know, my cousin that I was playing with her, my cousin's daughter, she's, we're both swimmers. As a, I was a swimmer as a kid, and she's a swimmer currently. I was like, yeah, this is great. We have, you know, good work ethic. We have good hand-eye coordination. We'll figure this out and, you know, do pretty well. It didn't translate very well. It didn't well translate to the very well. Foosball no. table? No. <laughs> 
Anyway, well, that's that's cool. Okay, well, and so you're back to reality, back at work. Yep, just another yep. just another day. Okay, uh, let's see. For me, um, my daughter's birthday is the 31st of December, New Year's Eve, but I did not spend it with her because she and her mom left that morning, or actually midday, to uh, – this is interesting. Uh, she's going to Charlotte. Actually, she's leaving on a flight, like somewhere probably right around now, uh, to uh, Austria or Germany, uh, leaving out of Charlotte. Uh, and I said, well, so when we were at the um, dinner to celebrate her birthday the day before her birthday on the 30th at a very nice tapas, not topless, tapas uh, restaurant in uh, Midtown Atlanta, uh, I said, so why are you guys leaving tomorrow when the flight doesn't leave until Wednesday. And she goes, Oh, well, we're going to go to uh, Hilton head Island on the way to Charlotte. And I thought, you know, I've driven, Have they to Charlotte looked at a, a, lot. At a map. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> she go, well, it's on the way. And I go, well, no, it's not on the way. I mean, you know, she is geographically challenged. Apparently I think how many times have you driven to Elon, which goes past Charlotte? How many times have you seen Hilton head Island on the way? <laughs> There's just a sign. It's like, you know, yeah, it's detour. like a, it's like a big giant triangle. Basically, they went from Atlanta all the way down to Hilton Head. She and her mom, and she wanted to spend uh, her birthday at the beach. So there that's what go. they did. And then uh, they went from uh, Hilton Head Island to Charlotte. And uh, I bet they had nice weather for it, though. Maybe a little rain uh, here and there, but mm -hmm. the temperatures were warm. Yeah, yeah, it's not not a bad time of year to go, I guess. So, um, yeah, so I've been at home since uh, the, our last show. And except that I left on January 1st yesterday uh, for this trip. It's a four day trip. Pretty nice trip. One leg, two legs, two legs, one leg. And I was in Memphis yesterday and the uh, first officer and I went to uh, the Blue City Cafe and uh, on Beale Street and had a nice meal. And uh, tomorrow I'm going to be flying into Newark and uh, we're laying over since it's a long enough layover um, in Manhattan at the Sheraton Times Square hotel and uh, we are going to have like a little mini meetup there so if you're listening to the show live right now and i apologize if you're now hearing about this uh, several days after this little meetup that we're going to have tomorrow uh, thursday the third of january somewhere near the uh, Times square area at some establishment that probably has really good beer so uh, so far looks like uh, dave abby and tanya are going to be uh, there, probably Phil as well, and uh, and who else? Uh, I think we need to put that on Slack. I'm, I'm not sure if it's on there or not, so if you're listening, um, go ahead and put the meetup there on Slack, or maybe I can do it later. Um, but uh, hopefully I'll get to see some APGers in Manhattan tomorrow. And, nice. Uh, yeah, and then one leg back uh, from Newark on Friday morning, and that's it. You're all caught up. I'm wondering um, if the beer authority might not be a good place to go to. The what? The beer, the beer authority. authority. Yeah, in yeah, New we've been there before, right? Yeah, we have. It's not that far from uh, Times Square. Interesting yep. suggestion. Yep, that was one of the places that uh, David Abbey had suggested, and uh, Tanya as well. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, I think they actually suggested another place. Let me see if I can find the... Uh, 
exchange that we had. Um, and I've never heard of it before. Um, hang on while I vamp a little bit. Um, let's see. Looks like a place called Places and Names at oh, interesting. 159th, uh, 159 West and 54th. 159 West. That sounds like really far away from where I'm staying. Doesn't it? 154 West? 159 West and 54th Street. 54th is about where we are, but I don't know where 159 West is. But I have a feeling it's somewhere near. They don't go too far east-west, do they? It's it's a long, long, thin island. Yeah. Yeah, It's good exercise for you. Typo or something. Anyway. Oh, wait, one more um, time. 159 West? 159 West 54th Street, or just do a search for faces and names. And it looks like that we're shooting for about 6.15 p.m. tomorrow night. No, that's like... Or 6 o'clock tomorrow night. Is that pretty close? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that's the plan right now, but you know, make sure that you uh, check out Slack. I'll try to remember to put a uh, tweet out or a, uh, and or a Facebook post. And... Dana is trying to um, communicate with us. What's, um, oh, <laughs> the van driver is refusing to leave the airport because he's waiting on one more crew member that does not exist. <laughs> the the, uh, the ghost crew member. Yeah. The good news is that in San Antonio, it, it's not, it doesn't take long to get from the airport to where we stay. So. Hopefully, Dana will be able to join us before the end of our show. I'm sure he will. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway. And now, speaking of Facebook. Now, you know how I feel about Facebook. But I have been trying to re-engage myself on Facebook. And Facebook has been trying to help me do that uh, by creating another identity for me. So, <laughs> I know that many. And it's my fault, really, because I was receiving all these requests for friends and so I'm going, okay, you know, uh, what is it? Do you use accept, accept the yeah. friend, accept, accept, and then, or confirm or whatever, whatever the terminology is. And then I started, and then I went to the website and I went, wait a minute, this is not my Facebook identity. This is, so here's the deal. You're not supposed to have, you're supposed to use your real name on Facebook, right? You're not allowed to use a name like Captain Jeff. Well, I've been doing it ever since I've been part of Facebook. My first name is Captain and my last name is Jeff. Not really. And um, it's a strange name, but I mean, we'll go along with it. Yeah, you know, Not sure and what nobody your complained. Were thinking. Maybe I figured captain. by they just knew yeah. that someday you're you're going to be an airline captain. <laughs> yeah, they should have known. Anyway, so I've been using that identity for my personal Facebook page for years and years, and I guess somebody decided, well, here's this guy that is on the airline pilot because we have an airline pilot guy page. And so, but this guy's name is Jeff Nielsen. So let's create a identity for him. <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe, but you maybe were able to log into both accounts. Yeah, I can log into both accounts. <clears throat> that's weird. That is weird. Yeah. In fact, there, that's really weird. There's a menu item on the Facebook page. Are you sure you that, didn't just that, create both of the accounts at some point? No, I did not create okay. both of those accounts. I have not seen the Jeff Nielsen account ever until about three months, two or three months ago. So oh, anyway. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead, Nick. 
No, no, I was saying amazing. Are you, uh, are you certain it's not a spoof account that someone else has generated in your name? But how would he be able to, excuse me, yeah. how would he be able to log into it? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not into that much detail in Facebook. Yeah, I don't know what happened there. Maybe I did something to cause it to happen. But um, anyway, so I'm, I have two accounts, two IDs, personal IDs. I have Jeff Nielsen and Captain Jeff. And I don't know what to do Pick one. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Pick one. Deactivate the other. Otherwise, you have this split personality okay. thing going on, which... Since most of the people... I mean, I have a huge number of friends on Captain Jeff because I've been on that for the longest time. Um, that's the one I'll choose. So if you happen to have me as your friend on Facebook on the Jeff Nielsen one, um, don't freak out when you see that I've deactivated that account because um, I just... I can't do both. It's hard enough for me to do one, actually. But... Uh, Anyway, so I just thought I'd throw that out there. If you've received, you know, a request from Jeff Nielsen to be a, you know, be your friend and all that kind of stuff, just disregard that. Uh, and then what's going to happen? I know what's going to happen after I do that and deactivate it, and then they're going to, well, you can't have a, an account named Captain Jeff because that's not a real name. <laughs> and then they're going to deactivate that one. There's your Facebook problems all solved. Yeah, that's true. Actually, that might be the best solution to everything. Ah, anyway, and uh, what else was I going to talk about? Oh, I talked about the um, the Catholic Pilot RSS feed. I think I figured out a way to get that fixed. So if you're one of those 61 people that are subscribed via the Catholic Pilot RSS feed, it should be working. You should be getting the last five shows that were on there before. And uh, But I still want to kind of end that feed. So I only have to concentrate on one feed every week. Um, so, um, I'm going to create some kind of a special little podcast for those that are getting the uh, Catholic pilot feed and then tell them to, you know, go, go to the APG feed. Go to hell. Well, oh, I'm not going to tell them that. That would not be, especially in the that Catholic. That would not be in the spirit pilot. of the podcast. No. I'll just it's go to purgatory then. <laughs> there we go. Okay. Which is a good thing, because if you're going to purgatory, you will end up in heaven eventually. Oh, there you go. It might just take a while. Yeah, it might take a while. That's true. It's all relative. Uh, and you know what else might take a while? This darn introduction segment. <laughs> yeah. Especially when Jana, Dana joins in in half an hour. I feel like he's going to have some things to say. Yeah. About no, we're just going to tell him. Going. I'm sorry. We're, you're just going to have to catch up with us later. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um Anything else you guys want to talk about? No. No. Oh, really? All right. Let's then head over to the coffee fund. What do you think? Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea. And the Java and me, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. That is the Jeff Smith singing Java Jive. And the reason why he's singing the Java Jive is because we're going to talk about the coffee fund. Coffee, Java, get it? So the coffee fund is your way to support the show financially if you have the resources to do so. And since the last episode, we have a few contributors to the classic fund. They would be Stephen Abreu, Alistair Kerr, Michael Smith, Mark Grochel, and Paul 
rake or rack r double a k and that's one way you can contribute to the the fund and the other way is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com and since the last show we have a new executive producer yay barb benson welcome barb thanks for joining the patrons over at patreon and if you are interested dear listener to uh, become part of the coffee fund and listen to the crew logs that we put out periodically in fact put out one just minutes before we started recording today's episode captain nick put one together uh, in miami so if you're interested in joining the fund or the uh, cadre please head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee Stand by for news. Okay, the first item in our news folder is ground worker involuntarily activated the inflatable emergency slide of an Aeromexico Dreamliner. And really, the article doesn't give a lot of information. It just shows the has a link to this YouTube video, I guess. And it shows a catering truck, a gate gourmet truck up against the um, forward. What would that be? The uh, R1 door, the right forward door, which is usually the uh, door that the caterers use for galley access at the front of the airplane. And a guy kind of kind of peers into the window and probably knocks. I can't tell exactly from the video. And the door comes open, but he does not activate the door. So what, I don't think it was the, uh, the, the uh, caterer's fault because I don't think he did anything to open that door. Somebody inside must have seen that the catering truck was there. And instead of making sure that the door was disarmed, they opened it anyway, and they, uh, the slide comes out in an, kind of an unusual fashion. I don't know. It doesn't look like it, it um, extended or inflated the way it's supposed to, perhaps because of the catering truck being right there. Was I that guess? or the, I think the person who did it might have realized what they do and desperately hung on to the door <laughs> to try and because when when you activate a door in this situation it's armed there's a power assist uh, bottle which will help throw the door open so normally uh, the door is pretty heavy piece of kit pull the lever down you've got to push it forward and then swing it outwards and it's uh, it's weighty and takes a bit of effort and it takes a little while but of course in emergency you don't want to have that delay so there's a power assist bottle which uh, helps throw the door open and it bangs on the stops and then the slide booms out but i suspect if this worker realized what was happening hung on to dear dear life to the door he might have kept it closed enough for the the slide to jam up yeah when i was watching this i'm thinking this is not going to turn out well because those things are really powerful and i thought that you know that that, uh, caterer might get killed well, that's that's the real danger of uh, having people on the inside open doors, particularly ones who aren't well trained. So I don't know about your company. and our company, we always, uh, whenever possible, get the person on the outside to open the door. 
because uh, normally the door will disarm itself automatically. Certainly in airbuses oh. they do. So if some the person on the outside pulls the lever, the door will automatically disarm, and there's no chance chance of them being hit in the face by the door or the slide. Hmm. Well, that's I can't a get the video nice to play. Feature. Hmm. Hmm. Well, yeah, it's you'll see it. I I think that uh, I, and I think that if if it were a flight attendant inside the uh, inside the aircraft seeing the caterers there, that they probably would have made sure to ensure that the door was not armed. And so I'm thinking, I wonder if it was maybe um, aircraft cleaners or something like that that were inside. That well, I mean, what I don't understand is that as you approach the gate, uh, the captain, I don't know about your SOPs, but in our company, the captain tells, instructs the cabin crew to disarm the doors. All the doors are disarmed, pins are put in, and the doors are safe now to operate uh, until mm -hmm. they're armed again once you've pushed back for your next flight. So someone would have to have either forgotten, which is really bad news, or accidentally or physically armed it prior to opening it. Why would you do that? Hmm. I, I don't know. At um, my company, when I turn off the seatbelt light when we arrive in our, you know, the final resting place of the uh flight <laughs> resting and, place. And thinking, the final resting place at the terminal well yeah. you know it's terminal, terminal resting terminal place. Place. we're on final <laughs> approach you know the language is not very good anyway it's, it's when all we, word choice isn't it so okay so we at our parking spot <laughs> and and we're not and we don't expect to move the airplane any further i hit the uh seatbelt light off and then I, the flight attendant, the lead flight attendant, will get on the PA and say, "Flight attendants, prepare the doors for, or disarm so the doors, blah cross blah blah, check cross check or whatever like they do." And they make sure that they're all disarmed. Yes, uh, I don't actually instruct. I guess I sort of instruct them by turning off the seatbelt light. That's the the signal for us. Um, yeah, I don't know. Kind of, kind of an odd situation. Definitely. And. I'm actually surprised that we were able to talk about it for this long. <laughs> so, so, Mike, actually, because it actually happens very frequently. I mean, I'm sure almost every day, somewhere in the world, someone will blow a slide by accident. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so common, despite and, all the training and all the precautions. And it just, I mean, it's just one of those things that even though everyone knows, everyone who's operating the doors should know, you can still miss it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Uh, let's see. The second item we have is uh, this article, a sharp rise in air crash deaths in 2018. So you remember last year about this time, we were talking about the record so setting year. Yeah. yeah. Nobody d died in a major aircraft or a major airline aircraft incident in 20, all of 2017, I, I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, didn't do so well um, in 2018. I guess they want, they're making up for, <laughs> for the great 2017. Um, yes, yeah. but what over time, I mean, there's a nice graph in here that, you know, shows a continual downward trend and there's kind of these little mm -hmm. spikes, but overall it's, you know, on, it's going down. So, yeah, it's still safe. Yeah. Just not quite as safe this past year as the year before. What do they say? 556 fatalities, I believe in, uh, 2017. Compared with 44 in 2017. Oh, I thought, see, I thought there were zero in uh, 2017. So hmm, I guess it depends on what they're counting. Last year's there were worst a couple civilian. Of, um, okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, sorry. No, um, go ahead. No, I think I was talking over you because I couldn't hear you. Um, 
No, I, I guess it just depends on what they're counting as an airliner. Okay. You know, whether it was a for a major airline or if it was um, corporate stuff. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I think there was there was some caveat to that zero mm-hmm. um, thing last year, whether it was jet yeah. airliners or, or what it was. But uh, Well, it's still, I think, if not the safest form of transportation, it's awfully close to being the safest. Um, you know, as we always say in, in our business, the most dangerous part of going out on a trip for Nick and I is getting from our home to the airport and from the airport to the hotel and, you know, all that kind of surface transportation in our vans and cars. And, you know, uh, that's that's where really uh, the, the bad statistics come into play as far as, you know, getting injured or killed. Um, the actual flying on the airplane part is pretty darn safe. It is. Uh, It's interesting to see that uh, the major statistics, the major loss of life, were caused by loss of control accidents. So that's, I guess, going to be the the focus for uh, future uh, flight safety training. Will be to try and reduce that because you know. Well, sure. I mean, just the the aircraft themselves are, you know, built so well, designed so well, systems are safe. So it comes down to. More yeah, they, they do say it can issues. be caused by mechanical failure, but as we've seen, human action uh, plays a big part in this. So, right. I mean, as much as we can, we try and uh, train that human element out, but to err uh, is human, so that's always going to be very hard. Uh, mechanical failures have actually been very rare, generally speaking. Uh, modern technology and uh, manufacture has ensured that those statistics are usually very small. Although, of course, we've seen a couple of uh, accidents which may go down to um, a mechanical system on the aircraft that you know, mm-hmm. pilots were poorly briefed about or whatever. We've yet to find mm-hmm. out for sure. Uh, and, of course, environmental disturbances. They're, they're going to cause uh, a loss of control. So um, any c- certain number of those you can uh, train for um, or train out of the statistics, as it were. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, it may have started as a mechanical issue that maybe 99 out of 100 air crews would have, you know, handled it properly. Or if there was, you know, if it was a system they were more familiar with or had more intensive training on, perhaps, Mm -hmm. more frequent training. But so basically the bottom line, yep, human error usually involves, you know, not recovering from whatever the situation is properly. Or handling the the uh, situation yeah. properly. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, and the reason why I say that is because a lot of people say, "Well, see, if you take the humans out of the machines, then we'll have a one hundred percent safety record." And as you know, <laughs> <laughs> no. how we feel about that here, <laughs> yes. uh, don't think so. No, yeah. Well, I mean, to yeah. a, to a degree, as long as you give the humans sufficient information. So, I mean, EGPWS the system that stops us accidentally flying into ground terrain or making a major uh, uh, mistake during an approach uh, has saved many, many lives. Uh, So we can say there's one level of automation or one system that uh, works well because it interacts well with the pilots. They understand the situation when one of those warnings goes off and they instinctively react in a very positive manner to recover the aircraft. So that's, for example, one that works Mm -hmm. extremely well. It's the ones that uh, are 
more insidious uh, and things that aren't well understood that uh, cause a lot of problems. Very true. Very true. I must point out that uh, we have a live chat room going on uh, as we record these shows. Uh, using the YouTube live streaming platform, we have uh, a bunch of great folks. Well, bunch of folks. there are some great folks. Well, <laughs> we have some people watching the show in the chat room. No, I'm just kidding, guys. We love you. <laughs> you are all great. Um, uh, but Armando says, uh, does, uh, because Nick is in Miami, does that make him Miami Nick? Oh, very good. Ha, 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 ha. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Armando, you're such a wit. Uh, yes, you are. <laughs> Okay, um, let's continue then with uh, item C. An inquiry reveals blunders behind the 777 freighter's 100-ton weight error. And uh, investigators of the BEA... Bureau d'enquête et d'analyse. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, they have disclosed that a 100-ton weight error uh, that led to um, the tail strike protection mechanism to activate on an Air France Boeing 777 freighter, uh, spurring the crew to command full takeoff thrust. Uh, it said that the takeoff parameters for the aircraft, uh, Foxtrot, Golf, Uniform, Oscar, Charlie, have been calculated using a weight of 243 tons rather than the actual figure of 343 tons, says the uh, French investigation authority again. Bureau d'enquête et d'analyse. And in its findings from a 22nd of May 2015 incident. Uh, so that was a few years back. This gross error meant that the calculated rotation speed of 152 knots with flap position 5 was far below the 175 knot and flap 15 setting required. Five seconds after the 777 uh, freighter rotated at 154 knots from runway 26 right at Paris's Charles de Gaulle, uh, its tail strike protection system activated. The system used its maximum authority to stabilize the aircraft's pitch at 9 degrees. The crew commanded maximum thrust some 8 seconds after the protection system engaged after the aircraft had managed to climb to 16 feet. It was traveling at 189 knots. Uh, the BEA says the 777 freighter passed the opposite direction th threshold at a height of 172 feet. There was no stall alarm and the stick shaker did not activate. Four cockpit crew had been on board the aircraft, which was bound for Mexico City. As it reached 20,000 feet, one of the supplementary pilots took over from the first officer who had been flying, and I guess that first officer had been startled by the incident. Uh, while the cockpit voice recording was unavailable to the inquiry, the investigators state that the crew discussed returning to the airport, but ultimately decided to proceed with the flight. Um, so it goes on to talk about, in this report, how the wrong data was entered into their onboard performance tool, part of their electronic flight bag, and the fact that the first officer entered the 100-ton uh, lighter weight than uh, was reality, and the captain had determined the takeoff weight was 343 tons, but for some reason he also entered 243 into the tool and they're not sure if the verbalization of that 243-ton figure was something that just um, got into the captain's head and he entered the wrong. I don't know. It just kind of seems odd uh, how this error was made because obviously at least one, perhaps more, of the pilots uh, knew that that 243-ton figure was off. 
but nobody did anything about it. So it does um, seem odd. I don't know about you, Jeff, but for us, when those figures go in, it's a pretty busy time. Uh, it's in the last, for us, the last probably 10 minutes of flight, and it's just as you're trying to, oh, sorry, flight preparation. It's just as you're trying to tie all those loose ends together of uh, getting the last passengers on, getting the doors closed, getting your PA out of the way. Um, there's an awful lot going on in that last 10 minutes, but these figures are so vital that they really ought to be encapsulated into a, a moment of absolute calm and quiet on the flight deck just to absolutely ensure that they go in correctly because there's often two, three extra people on the flight deck all trying to get things signed and done. Uh, and it does worry me quite often when I'm trying to get these figures done that uh, both of us are almost trying to do two or three things at once while these numbers go in. Now, on a freighter, it would be different. You would expect the to be relatively quiet because mm -hmm. they haven't got all the passengers, they haven't got all the uh, cabin attendants, they haven't got a TCO, all hassling, trying to ensure an on-time departure. Um, but uh, even so, it's obvious that without being very, very disciplined about putting these numbers in, double-checking them every time and taking care about it, uh, that mistakes get made. Yeah. And it's easy. I mean, I spent a lot of my day typing and entering things manually that way, and it's easy to, heck, make a typo. And unless you're really on guard for, um, oh, this is what I was going to say about uh, the type of notes that I do, not just typing, but a lot of times using voice recognition. So I'm sure this doesn't apply to this, but um, just where I notice errors if you're using a voice recognition system to to input information and it mishears you, it puts in, it substitutes a word that's a real word. So when you know what you've said or what you meant to do, and you go back and you read through it to look for errors, it's very easy to read over those things because your brain already knows what the expected information was. So in this case, I, I don't know, it sounds like there was some other discrepancies there, but I could easily see where if you entered something incorrectly, just as a typo, but your brain knew what the right information was supposed to be, unless you're really sitting there and counting through the numbers, um, it could be missed. Yeah, good point. The other thing that is a little uh, concern to me uh, was this one sentence. The computed configuration of the aircraft surprised one of the supplementary pilots, uh, says the BEA, but he did not air his doubts. Like, yeah, that's kind of concerning. Come on. You know, if, you're, if you concerning. think that something is not right, then why would you be hesitant to say wait are, are you sure that that figure is right um you know what did you say you know but hmm. yeah i know it, it's sad because we we should all despite the embarrassment it might cause you uh it, mm -hmm. if the, the guys turn around and say no, no no you're wrong this is right you go okay well that's fair enough i was just wasn't certain that causes embarrassment so some people might be a little reluctant to come forward when they mm -hmm. think they see an error but the two guys actually doing the job uh, you know, appear to have been perfectly happy with it, and you think, "Well, God, could I be the one wrong?" They're both they're both happy, so perhaps not. But you're right; you should always pipe up if you think something has been wrong. I think that that's one of the important things that, uh, as a captain especially, you set the tone and you make sure that you all your crew members understand that. Hey, if if there's something that I'm doing that's wrong. Please tell me, you know, it's, it, mm -hmm. uh, there's a saying that we it's have much easier to fix something before it happens. Than... Exactly. Or it's not a mistake until we both make the mistake or all of us make the mistake. Right. 
Uh, so pipe up and, you know, just having that kind of an open atmosphere, like, Hey, you're not going to hurt. You know, I don't have thin skin. If there's something that I'm doing that's wrong, please tell us because this is a business where, you know, mistakes can lead to tragedies, big tragedies. Absolutely. And in this case, the airplane, the, the protection system uh, for tail strike and everything else kind of looks like they, you know, took care of them. Although it still was not <laughs> a, a perfectly safe operation using these low speeds and uh, flap settings. No, it wasn't. But having said that, uh, they got off uh, to 172 feet by the end of the runway. Now, mm-hmm. um, you can, on, on a balanced field performance figure, that can be as low as 35 feet in a dry runway and 15 feet on a wet runway. So mm-hmm. 172 feet looks like they actually had performance in hand. So, you know, that that's fine. But the fact is, I think that they could have had a major tail strike doing it if it hadn't been for this protection system built into the aircraft. Right. And, you know, we've seen, we've covered a lot of these stories. In fact, when I was looking at this in the news folder, I'm thinking, oh, this must be the one, the, uh, what was it, the Israeli uh, LL. Yeah, didn't we just uh, have that's one That's exactly just what I yeah. thought. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And then I went, oh, no, this is another one. I don't even yeah. remember talking about this one, yeah. actually. Yeah. So uh, we're picking up on a trend here for these figures to go in incorrectly. And, yep. uh, you know, we're covering a lot of these incidents, which is Weight worrying. calculations and distance calculations are off and things yep. like that. Yep. So, yep. People entering the runway at the wrong mm-hmm. uh, point, uh, yep. you know, mm-hmm. consuming more runway than they expected, all of which leads to these performance errors. I would, I would say that, uh, you know, loss of control is the number one concern out there, but I think that these performance data blunders are probably either number two or very close to it. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. potential accidents. So if I was an airline pilot listening to this, that would be two areas I would be paying particular attention to. Yes. Good job I'm not. Oh, hang on. <laughs> are that? you listening to anything we're saying, Nick? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't don't worry. <laughs> But I'll, I'll listen to it in a few days' time, so make sure you don't er- edit that bit out. Um, looks like this is going to be one of those shows where I definitely use your local recordings because I don't know how I'm coming through, but you guys are kind of stuttering uh, quite a bit. It's probably the Wi-Fi here at the hotel that I'm staying, but uh, whatever. Okay, um, moving on to item D, um, major fire to delay Airbus production. Premium Aerotech, a subsidiary of Airbus based in Augsburg, Germany, was left without their plant on Friday night when a fire broke out, causing tens millions of euros worth of building and equipment damage. Preliminary reports from witnesses and media indicate the fire initiated in a surface treatment area before rapidly spreading to nearby goods. At the time, no one was in the building, leaving no injuries behind. However, dozens of firefighters spent the night in the heat battling the blaze until it was under control. Uh, investigations are underway to see what caused the fire, especially focusing on workplace safety and conditions, as well as any intentional acts. As a consequence of the fire, Airbus has been left in a difficult position, as they state virtually all Airbus models will now be delayed. With And that cannot be good news for Airbus. Uh, with premium Aerotech being a tiered or tier one supplier for Airbus, the company has no choice but to accept the delays and scramble their backup plans into place. So, anyway, there's more information in the article, which we'll have in the show notes. Have you heard anything about this, uh, Nick, from no, it's all your news neck of the woods? To me. Uh, we've got A350s that will be coming uh, 
into our, our company over the next uh, you know next few months throughout the next couple of years we've got a bunch of them so I mean we've been having enough problems with uh, the bin line I'm just hoping that the 350s that we've got on order aren't delayed too much because you know we a company that makes a lot of plans based on the arrival of aircraft and uh, it really does mess things around uh, when you get a, an unexpected delay like this mhm well hopefully they'll get their backup plans going as quickly as possible and there won't be too large of an interruption with the uh, with the uh, production of Airbuses out there. But, yeah, uh, it, it seems to be affecting a whole bunch. Even Eurofighter Typhoon has been uh, delayed oh. because of it. This must have been a really important component manufacturer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, that's not good news. And this is not good news, in my opinion. Okay, so, um, you know, we hear stories all the time where there is an established community – and then somebody comes up with this idea to ma- build a major international airport right in the middle of all these neighborhoods. I mean, where did this airport come from? <laughs> right. Just, what, who do they think they are? Overnight sprung up. Wait a out minute. Of, wait a minute. Did I get that wrong? I got that backwards. I oh, think. you mean the airport was there first? Yeah. And usually and it's quite a ways from the city center. Built a and subdivision then the, somewhere yeah. nearby. And then so we, what do we have? We have complaints, noise complaints. No. <laughs> we have. We have some people that uh, listen to our show that uh, are very familiar <laughs> with <laughs> this whole noise complaint business. Community? Yeah, community. community. Yeah. Uh, so uh, this guy, a San Diego man, oh, bless him, uh, has created a noise button that users can press to file a complaint about airplane noise. So, you know, and it turns out that most of the noise complaints are only, what's this? Why am I getting a warning on my phone? Your Apple ID is being used to sign in to a MacBook Pro near Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> obviously, your... that's my daughter trying oh, to sign okay. in. I don't know why I'm getting this notification, notification all of a sudden. All of a sudden, I thought like one of my yeah, Mac cards was trying to really sign into your Steph, Steph account. Steph is cloning your phone account. I know. I'm like, okay. I was in the middle of setting up a new Facebook account for Jeff, but I've been, uh, I've been caught <laughs> okay, red-handed now, here. <laughs> now I understand what's happening. Okay. Uh-huh. Oops. I'm trying to be as open and transparent as I can, and what do I get for that? Okay, so what I'm going to do, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a little pause here because I'm sure my daughter is waiting for me to uh, send her this code. Uh, so, and she'll understand when all of a sudden I send this code to her, what's happening. I think I, I, I do this actually quite often with my kids, unfortunately. <laughs> it's because you love them. Yes. Because I love them. That's why. And, uh, there we go. So sorry for the interruption. So this, um, this man, oh no, where was I? I was, uh, talking about the fact that, oh, noise complaints from what I understand, um, are usually put in or filed from a very relatively small number of people, uh, like lots and lots of noise complaints, but just a handful of people, right? And like yeah. people Do making a- multiple complaints yeah. in uh-huh. one day type that's, that's of a certainly thing. certainly what uh, um, Adam has told us in the, far, in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So and now folks this are- San Diego man has created a button that makes it even easier for these people to to uh, file noise complaints. And uh, I think I just heard a, a voice in the background here. Let me uh, pull up the, the window 
where our hangout is, and I see a uh, a fine-looking gentleman in a uh, a very nice hat, and uh, his name is Captain Dana. Hello, Dana. Welcome. Hmm. But it premature there. <laughs> he is uh, apparently yeah. He's not muted, from what I can tell. He's struck dumb. So, but um, as soon as he figures out his sound issues, we'll uh, we'll hear from or his audio issues. We'll we'll hear from Dana. I noticed so that uh, these noise things. It costs you five dollars every time you press the button there. The, mm. the bloke who's invented it, and you can only. Well, do he's a smart guy then. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he is. I think I think that's the main reason for it. He's thought, how can I make money out of these uh, people who want to compete? Yeah, continually so complain. do you all have? Uh, you all have Amazon, obviously, in the UK and Europe. And do you um, also have access to these little thing they call dash buttons? I think mm-hmm. um, that you can like press to order, and when you press it for toilet paper or press it for paper towels or I'm whatever. sure we can. I, I'm not aware of the system. I don't have any myself, uh, but um, yeah, I know of these things available. And uh, looks like this guy has basically engineered these devices to uh, uh, send in these complaints. The complaints are actually getting sent to the airport somehow. I think so. Or are they just like disappearing into the, (laughs) they don't go. I mean, how do you have any, any uh, assurance that your complaints made it to the intended destination? But in this article, they talk about um, complaints have surged. Let's see, where was this at uh, Baltimore, Washington international Marshall airport. Um, Complaints have surged to 17,228 in August from 2,692 the previous month. So what is that? That's a, a factor of at least five or six uh, more. Uh, and they think that uh, 90% of the complaints come through third-party apps like this app is called Air Noise. Air Noise, yep. Yeah. So I think that, um, yeah, it's just the, the same f- – handful of people that are sending these complaints in now are just sending a lot more. I mean, <laughs> and I this love, guy's I making some, some money. Quotes. These quotes are great. <laughs> oh, it, feel, it felt so good. It's highly, highly therapeutic. Makes you feel like you can make a difference. Yeah. <laughs> really? So, so they're getting a kick every time they press the button. Makes them feel good. Uh, it's just wrecking the whole idea and the whole concept of uh, noise complaints. Mm-hmm. There's one couple that made 5,000 complaints in four months. There you go. Mm. Just to O'Hare. I mean, I slept at the airport last night at O'Hare. I did not hear a single aircraft all night long. These people must be living in like houses made of tin foil or something. <laughs> I'm not sure. Oh, yeah. Are they whiners? Yes. 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 Or, Dana? Or wieners, you call them in America, don't you? Wieners. Wieners. <laughs> Both wieners, wieners and whiners. Wieners. Yeah. I don't Weinberg. Know. Hey, how are you guys? Good, good. Good. How are you? Can you hear me? Yes, yes we, can. we can hear you. That's Excellent. why we're talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> Good to see everybody. And the only one at home is Steph, actually, right? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. And cool. just barely. This morning or yesterday, I was not. That's here, right. But. Yeah. You just got back from a, a trip. Uh, so, Dana, tell us where you are and what, what, what you're up to. Uh, well, I'm in San Antonio, Texas. Just arrived. Uh, terrible weather in, in uh, San Antonio. Um, not low ceilings, but uh, we had uh, coming in from from Atlanta uh, a report of severe turbulence just uh, at a VOR called Industry, which is right abeam the arrival course into San Antonio. I'm forgetting the exact fix. It's a beam, but uh, I 
UU is the identifier industry. I can't remember. I industry I, is like just a little bit to the um, north east of, of um, Houston, I believe. It's north, to, north, northeast of Houston is, and I think it's actually west yeah. because it's between San Antonio and Houston. It was after. Oh, okay. So, anyways, it's on the arrival in, into uh, a Braun arrival into uh, into uh, San Antonio. And so there was a severe uh, report, and we were coming down through 18,000 and descending. We started to pick up uh, what I would describe as continuous moderate. I had fortunately sat my flight attendants down in advance, and uh, I didn't have any real reports. Even our our advanced technology that we have in the flight deck wasn't really depicting anything. It was just a gut feeling. And uh, so that severe actually was initially reported that it was a 737, which, of course, has some credibility. Uh, and then I said, uh, at least that's what the controller said. And I said, uh, what's, what type of aircraft was that? He looked at it again. Oh, it was a citation. Oh. I said, okay, well, let's, let's have a little more perspective on that then. We, uh, we didn't experience that severe turbulence. We got, I would call moderate and of course the fact of the matter is i flew the citation so i know what the characteristics of the aircraft are and when they reported severe I, you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt although that's not the proper thing to say but it's comparing it's comparing a big bird compared to a small bird and uh, probably an owner operator or you know or similar but uh, yeah the weather was uh, weather earlier today uh, flew um First leg out to New Orleans, and I had to do an actual Cat 2 with an Autoland. And I wanted to stick my head between my, uh, you know, somewhere that nobody could see me because <laughs> the landing was terrible. <laughs> I mean, at 50 feet, it just flared and cut the power. And I was like, oh, this is not going to be oh, good. This is not going to be good. <laughs> this is not going to be good. And I, you know, you really, I mean, I was going to click it off, but I, you know, it was, it was, it was still descending towards the runway. I said, you know, I'm just going to let it go. And, uh, yeah, it, it touched down just and it was, uh, boom. Make that, make that appointment with your chiropractor. You know, like, yeah, yeah, rock, and, you know, uh, between a rock and a hard place with that situation, because if you're, if you're using Autoland procedures, it's either going to land via Autoland or it's going to be a go around. You're not really, you know, allowed to click it off and land it nope. manually. Not at so, all. That's the way our, our SOP is at uh, Acme, unfortunately. <laughs> so, devil says 50, 10. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, when I used to fly an airplane that um, the flight engineer was calling out the uh, 50, 40, 30, 20, 10, I always briefed him and said, just don't call out those numbers too fast, okay? Um, obviously, that has nothing to do with you know, That's no. very good. I love that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's funny. Yeah, um, I left. And that's the important thing, really. Um, so, that's when I when the when the Autoland crashes the airplane. That's when I make a PA and say that was, I did not do that. That was the Autoland. But then everybody goes, "Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah, sure. right. They, yeah, we can blame it on that. Yeah. What what is it, Steph? Navy pilot. Oh or, no, I was no. thinking. Uh, me thinks you doth protest too much or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Shakespeare. Um. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad that uh, you're all still in one piece, Dana. Yeah, well, it's a good thing. And, of course, we were late coming into San Antonio because, well, they pulled the aircraft up from the hangar. Oh, and, that's uh, always fun. Yeah, it's always and fun. And it's always ready to go when they pull it oh, from the it, hangar it, and it, to the gate. Yeah, but it was really <laughs> close to being ready to go uh, back to the hangar because it was such a mess. Um, so that took about a good 20 minutes. They didn't. The flight was a 204. 
the aircraft didn't show up to the gate until about uh, 1.30-ish, roughly. And then uh, by the time they cleaned it, catered it, uh, we didn't even start boarding until about five minutes of two. Mm-hmm. So then uh, we were payload. First, one of the first times I've seen this on the Mad Dog, uh, payload optimized. Um, it has happened in the past, of course, but uh, it's not a very common occurrence, especially on, on you know, it's not an overly long leg. Um, but we had we were filed at flight level two six zero, so obviously we we're going to burn more fuel down low because of the turbulence. And then uh, we were also um, also um, had to have an alternate because the weather here in San Antonio was terrible. So we had uh, we can't we took off with the thirty two about thirty two five I think it was thirty two five thirty two thousand five hundred pounds of fuel. Uh, which is a very large amount. So we had to actually leave people behind. I decided to delay the flight just a couple of minutes uh, just to see if we can't get any more passengers on once we had all the cargo numbers. And fortunately, I did. Uh, you know, fortunately, I did that because I, I was able to get two more people on. I uh, still left with uh, five empty seats. So mm-hmm. did everything I could possibly do. And uh, I feel bad, but it is what it is. Yeah, sometimes conditions just, you know, make it such that uh, you can't do exactly everything you want to do. And then I had a real chatty 350 FO. Very proud of his airplane. Airbus 350 <laughs> FO. On your jump seat? Oh, my jump seat. And he just liked to chat the whole way. Who the wouldn't? entire time. He's got a lot to talk about. That's a lovely <laughs> airplane. <laughs> I've, I've, well, never mind. Um, <laughs> So that's what's going on in my okay. world. All right. Excellent. And I'll be in so, Columbus uh, tomorrow night, and so I get a little meetup coming uh, oh, tomorrow good. night. Good, yep. good, good. Columbus, Ohio. Okay. So, uh, well, I hope that uh, you have a good time at the meetup. I'm going to have a little meetup in uh, New York tomorrow. So Nice. We'll have to compare notes uh, next week. Yeah, well, mine's with just, uh, right now, it's James and my my FO. Okay. So, nice. uh um, Jennifer is not available and I put a, uh, I put a, uh, notice out on Slack. I haven't had a chance to tweet, but it doesn't appear as though anybody's responded to that. So, oh, well. Now folks, you need to be on Slack. Pay attention at the end of the show when Hillel tells you how you become part of the Slack team. And then you can learn about these meetups that we have occasionally here and there. And, uh, Anyway, okay. So, Dana, we uh, we started without you, obviously, and uh, we just finished the news segment, and uh, now we're about to head over to the feedback. Are you ready to join us? I am indeed. Okay, let's do it. Captain, incoming message. Okay, let's start with the first item in our feedback folder, which is a question for Nick. This is from J.J. Pittsburgh. Really, J.J.? That's really your name? Hmm. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, he says, hi. Perhaps Captain Nick can provide an answer to this. We doubt it. I was looking at a trip to visit my friend in Estonia, and it includes a flight from JFK to SVO in Moscow. I've been tracking the flight daily, and sometimes the route goes further north and crosses land. Sometimes it goes directly east over water. Is this a captain's preference due to weather or other factors? 
I was curious why the devi- deviation in roots day to day. Thanks for your time. I now have. APG syndrome. Sorry to hear that, JJ, but uh, you're not the only one out there that suffers from this syndrome. Um, and we have covered this, but it, maybe it's about time that we talk about it again because we're getting new listeners every day. Of course, if you're suffering from the APG syndrome, eventually you'll hear us talk about this. But we're not going to. We're going to spare the uh, the suspense, and uh, Captain Nick is going to tell you why these roots change day to day. Yeah. Hi there, JJ. Now, uh, are you sure you're not the JJ who's one of my pilot managers? Uh, <laughs> I just want to make... You know, all right. If you are, just now turn off. I don't want you hearing this. So um, you're quite right. It's captain's preference. You know, we we just fly wherever we want to. And we don't actually care much about, you know, anything else. And uh, a lot of people like to fly over their mum's house, so they, they either have a route, they go, my mum lives over here, so I'm going to fly over here. Or perhaps a girlfriend will impress their girlfriend, so they fly mm. over their houses, you know. Or yeah. they just think, oh, there's a pretty island, oh, some nice mountains, we'll fly over there. I'm All right, well, thank you for that answer, <laughs> yeah, Captain no, Nick. And I uh, guess we should move on to the next, uh, yeah. no, wait a minute, yeah. that's not right. Yeah, it's not right. I think we're going to have to... Uh, Improve our accuracy rating with that one just okay, a little so bit here. Just let's, slightly. Let's try and bring them back up. Okay, there are, there are a variety of factors that will uh, determine our route. And uh, it, sometimes it can be simple, uh, just a matter of which winds are going to give you the lightest headwind. Or if you're flying from JFK to uh, Moscow, it, you're going to be looking at the best tailwind. And those winds we pick up are in jet streams. Those jet streams move around depending upon the weather systems that are present over the uh, Atlantic. And they occur at high levels, and we try and slide into those jet streams because they're corridors of very fast-moving air that will often increase your speed over the Earth by 100 uh, miles an hour or more. And if you can stay in one for as long as possible, obviously it uh, boosts your speed and decreases the uh, Flight time significantly gets you to your destination quicker and uses less fuel. We'll measure that uh, against the cost of certain routings. So some routings, even though the jet streams are strong and good, will take you into airspace where the navigation fees are quite high. So you may not want to go into a particular piece of airspace and pay an extra fee when just going a little further south or north will keep you into cheaper airspace, and that will obviously make a difference. Sometimes uh, if you're flying a twin-engine airplane, you won't want to go too far away from diversions that are en route so that uh, you maintain your ETOPS, your extended twin operations uh, legality, and you have to stay within a certain time distance uh, from airfields so that you can divert to them if you lose an engine, and that will obviously change your route. And uh, sometimes it's uh, just a matter of uh, congestion. So some routes will be heavily, uh, you know, a lot of aircraft trying to get onto the same route, and you'll be programmed to fly on a slightly different route uh, so that there's a better chance of you actually being able to fly your flight plan. So all those get thrunged together, and we've got a bunch of flight planners who will usually fire them through a computer and come out with the cheapest and best option that suits the flight time and the cost, uh, etc. And balances everything against fuel cost, navigation fees, uh, and your arrival time, uh, and then uh, calculates the best route to take. 
and of course depends on where the captain's girlfriend lives as well. Um, that takes precedence. Of exactly course. right. Uh, we can have an influence in this. So, if a route we're looking at is going to take us into an area of turbulence we're not happy with, we can often ask to have the route deviated slightly uh, to take you clear. But quite honestly, those areas of turbulence move. Uh, then not the predictions are not terribly accurate. So, generally speaking, we'll just go with the flow and deal with it when we get there. Um, so a lot of factors in there and uh, they vary because the weather systems move and the uh, heads and tailwinds, those jet streams, will move up and down, move north and south and we will have to move our routes uh, to match them, generally speaking, because that's often the main job is to try and get into those uh, winds or avoid those winds as much as possible depending on whether you're going east or west because generally speaking they go from west to east. Uh, it's all to do with the circulation of the Earth. If the Earth ever t decides to spin the other way, they'll go from east to west. So, well, that's not likely to happen. Mm, probably not. Probably not. Um, would be good. Because we're all scientists here. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, they say anything's possible, but yeah, yeah. I wouldn't count on that one. Well, the the, uh, the North Pole might swap with the South Pole one day. Yeah, I mean, give it a... That Give does it a happen. Hundred or two hundred million years, or well, more. actually, we do one, aren't we? Aren't we do a swap? I think we are do one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, like how soon? Like, like, like tens of thousands. Before you retire. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Might be before Nick retires. Could be. Nah. Could, that yeah. Hundred and how many days? Oh, it's around one hundred and forty-five days now. So, but who's counting? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Nick. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. That's a great explanation for the the uh, variety of different routes you might see on a particular flight. Thank you, Nick. And thanks, JJ, for posing the question. And uh, we hope that you have a great flight to Moscow. And you, if you are the JJ who's my manager, you should Estonia. be doing some work, not writing for the show. <laughs> You're right. Leave us alone. Okay. Um, someone named Liz sent in this piece of feedback. Uh, this incident happened in 2011, she says, but the inquiry results were just recently published. I thought it was an interesting incident. Would like to hear your thoughts on the situation. Thanks, Liz. Liz is our producer. So this um, was put out on the 18th of December, 2018. And as Liz mentioned, the event actually occurred uh, in 2011. And it goes, let's see. What's the source? Flight dashboard. I've never heard of that before. Interference from a departing aircraft disrupted the ILS signal moments before a landing Singapore Airlines Boeing 777-300ER veered off the runway at Munich. German investigation authority, the BFU, says that the 777 crew was conducting an automatic landing, a decision it describes as understandable given the weather conditions, cloud base of 300 feet and a visibility of 2 kilometers. The airport was operating under Category 1, which did not require the increased aircraft separation necessary during Category 2 or Category 3 operations. Uh, the BFU says that 777 pilots did not tell the approach controller that they intended to perform an automatic landing to runway 8 right. The controller, as a result, allowed a BAE Systems Avro RJ-85 to enter the runway and take off while the approaching 777 was 2.1 nautical miles from the threshold. 
As the 777 crossed the, crossed the threshold at 50 feet, the RJ-85 was climbing away and passed in front of the localizer antenna, significant, significantly interfering with the signal. The RJ-85 was flying relatively low because it had conducted an intersection takeoff and had a lower climb rate. Because the 777 was carrying out an automatic landing, the disturbance to the ILS caused it to bank slowly to the left, up to 3.5 degrees, and the crew responded with an attempted go-around. The inquiry believes the crew had considered the possibility of ILS interference and had been prepared to um, initiate a missed approach, but were nevertheless confused by the aircraft's late deviation. While the captain called for the go-around flap setting and the takeoff go-around switches were pressed, the aircraft did not respond with go-around thrust. The inquiry found that the moment the switches were pressed, the aircraft's left main gear touched down, and Boeing's system logic inhibits the go-around mode in such an event. This prevented the crew from being able to initiate an automatic go-around, says the BFU. It adds that the captain subsequently decided not to attempt a manual go-around because by then the aircraft had switched to ground mode. The crew stated that, in their estimate, a go-around procedure initiated manu manually with an aircraft already on the ground would have been much more dangerous than remaining on the ground. As the aircraft rolled out along the runway, the autopilot remain, remained engaged. It used the rudder and nose wheel to follow the localizer signal, steering the aircraft to the left. BFU says the captain applied right rudder to try to keep the aircraft on the runway, but owing to the autopilot's remaining engaged, the control input remained ineffective. The aircraft veered off the left side of the runway at 123 knots, some 944 meters beyond the threshold, rolling for 400 meters through the grass. As both pilots applied right rudder through the paddles, the autopilot disengaged, oops, and the 777 swung to the right by 40 degrees, re-entering the runway about 1,566 meters from the threshold. It crossed the center line of 8 right with a heading of 120 and veered off the right side of the runway at 71 knots before coming to a halt in the grass 35 seconds after touchdown. Right, him, Dis cowboy. <laughs> that must have been an interesting Right. <laughs> like, I'm thinking, like, why not, why not, like, disconnect all the auto stuff and like fly the airplane you know like it's just making me frustrated reading this yeah <laughs> you probably could tell yeah <laughs> like really what you're shaking your head well <laughs> mm. yeah well you gotta watch the video to see my nonverbal uh communication so what do you think about this one huh sounds like there were a couple opportunities here to not have this outcome right yeah. If you know, so I, I don't know where was this? Uh, the this happened this? in Munich, Munich. Okay, so in the States, I believe when the weather gets to and correct me if I'm wrong, Dana, I think it's like 800, um, 800 uh, foot ceiling and two miles visibility, they automatically protect. We have a protected area. Um, so if if you're in these weather conditions, 302 miles, the um, in the U.S., I believe you know you would you can expect that all this stuff would be protected. They would not allow an airplane to take off in front of you and possibly disrupt the uh, the signal from the uh, instrument landing system. Um, but uh, I could be wrong about that. But I'm pretty sure. But even then, it might be a good idea to let the tower or approach control and tower know that you are 
planning on conducting an auto land. Is that part of your SOPs if you're doing it in a situation where you would not necessarily be required to use it? Well, so... Or if... you know, or even if you are required to use it, do you have to? I th- so a lot of times, well, you know, the airplane has to be, I think, every... Because um, I know you have to do it just to... Every 30 days, I believe, the uh, the airplane has to have a auto land conducted to remain uh, auto land capable. And so right. after about 20 days, I think, maintenance, it automatically puts out a, um, a note on the flight plan that requests that the crews perform an auto land. And then when we do, then we have to log it. So that the airplane now is still Autoland capable. Um, now, I don't think it's a strict requirement that we have to tell Approach and Tower that we are conducting a practice Autoland. Although it's probably a very good idea because, you know, you can end up uh, in a situation like this where the protected area is not protected. And you could get into a weird situation. Well, and, and Jeff, I think, I mean, the numbers you put out there, 802 rings a bell. I'd have to actually look it up, but I'm pretty sure that's an accurate number. I know there's a, a differentiation on uh, Cat 2, Cat 3 uh, operations versus just straight Cat 1 operations. And I'd have to actually look it up because it's been a while since I've looked at it. Um but as far as uh, as far as notification, yes, uh, absolutely, we're supposed to per our SOPs. At least, if I remember correctly, and remember, I've done some recent studying. Uh, anytime we're going to do a practice auto land, we're supposed to let them know. Well, you know, I looked that up actually, and uh, I did not find that. But maybe I was just looking in the wrong place. Yeah, but we I, have I that procedure, that. Jeff. So uh, in Europe, uh, certainly in uh, the UK, if low visibility procedures are in force. Uh, it will be in the ATIS, so you can tell. And if it's mm-hmm. not there, then you have to ask for the runway to be protected because you're going to do a practice uh, CAT 3. Uh, and our company procedures uh, require that. Uh, if they don't want to slow the progress of airplanes, they, they will often then say, you could, you're welcome to, but we will be unable to protect the ILS for you. And it sounds like this crew were aware that they may not have a protected ILS. And that's really what worries me. They knew they might get interference. Uh, So having the aircraft diverge from the localizer would hardly have been unexpected. They they should have briefed for it. They should have prepared for it. And indeed, it appears they were. Why on earth they didn't take out the autopilot and uh, keep the aircraft on the centline, I don't know. But then having tried to go around, uh, having fallen foul, another incident of a 777 crew falling foul of the Boeing auto thrust system in the go-around. The last one we you'll recall was the 777 in, uh, was it Dubai or Abu Dhabi? One of those? Yeah, I think in Dubai. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, one of those places. Where they, they did a go-around uh, and the pilot pressed the go-around buttons uh, he didn't follow the throttles through to make sure they opened, but he did pitch the airplane up and try to do a go-around and, of course, ran out of airspeed because the throttles remained firmly at close because the aircraft thought it was on the ground and because the wheels weight on wheels logic had activated the, the ground mode and he stalled and smacked the airplane and wrecked the airplane and caught fire. Big mess. Um, so Yeah, that was, def- that was Dubai a couple of years ago now, two years yeah. ago. Yeah. So, so this is obviously a known problem for Boeing pilots, and they should be well briefed now by now, and they should have been beforehand on uh, the intricacies of their 
uh, toga buttons, how they work, and um, under what logic circumstances they won't work, which is the most important thing. Um, so, and they, because your hands are on the throttles, you should also be following through with them to make sure they do exactly. what you expect. You know, you'd, you'd think they would be doing that. So, I yeah. don't know. I, I don't know. That's what just gets me. Like it's I said, like, a couple, okay. couple instances here to prevent the eventual outcome from happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you should be, you know, when, when we're, when the auto flight system, especially when you're getting low to the ground, if you do not have your hand on the yoke or the stick and the throttles or the thrust levers or whatever the heck you want to call these things. You're stupid. You need to. Ha you have to be flying the airplane with the autoflight system. And when the autoflight system is not doing what you're, you expect it to do, then you make it happen. And that, that's right. But it does worry me that it appears in this circumstance that it said the rudder system remained ineffective because uh, they hadn't disconnected the autopilot at that point. Now I don't know. The control it, input was ineffective. Right. So. Not the rudder was so, ineffective. Yeah, so, so, so yeah. The, uh, the autopilot yeah. was trying to follow the signal, which was still being And the pilot bent. was trying to oppose yeah. it. But the fact that the yeah. pilot couldn't oppose it Overcome until he disconnected the, the autopilot just kind of worries me. If there's a 777 guy out there, Miami Rick, come to our help here. Uh, yeah. Is the rudder really uh, not effective if uh, the autopilot is... Uh, uh, it, on my aircraft, if, if I were to kick the rudder... Uh, in the opposite direction of the way the autopilot was trying to push it, the autopilot would immediately flick off. Um, you know that. And I would certainly, before I would even try to do that, I would be disconnecting the autoflight system, the autopilot, and and taking over manually anyway. Yeah, exactly. But as it's, as you say, Nick, it it should have some kind of an override pressure that you know once it reaches a certain you know um, pound per square inch pressure on the control then it goes oh okay then you have the airplane then well it sounds like but, it did eventually but by that time they had so much rudder <laughs> on that they went straight right. back across the runway and out the other side again so like a well, because it, had, it had applied it so far in the other direction yeah, <laughs> at that point absolutely you know. yeah yeah it's just um, nightmare mm. nightmare hundreds oh none of the 162 occupants were injured well thank the lord for that God, they were scared to, you know what? Is that a nice roller coaster ride on the ground? Mm. Yeah. Whee. Yeah. I, All right. I so don't really have anything good to say. I, yes, I, sir? I did some research. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So whether less than 800 foot ceiling in, or two miles or less, the ILS critical areas are protected. Vehicles. Yay. I got it right. And you did. In aircraft. Uh, are not, for except for aircraft laying exit, depart, and execute misapproach, are not authorized in or over the critical area when the arriving aircraft is between the outer marker or fixed in lieu of the outer marker and the airport. Auto land approaches may be conducted without contacting ATC. That's when it's, whether it's 800 or below 2 miles visibility. Whether at or above ceiling 800 foot and visibly greater than 2 miles, no critical area action is provided under these conditions. The flight crew should advise, doesn't say it has to, should okay. advise the tower that will conduct an auto land or coupled approach to ensure the ILS critical areas are protected when the aircraft is inside the middle marker. If ATC cannot provide protection, the auto land approach may be conducted at the captain's discretion. <laughs> Mm. The captain's interesting. Captain's discretion. Demise. Discretion. Discretion. How discreet's the captain? Oh no. Yes. Yeah. No, no kidding. <laughs> 
In addition, well, I must say that I've conducted a practice auto lands without saying a thing, and um, and but again, I'm always following through. And if the thing starts doing something wonky, then you know I just take over manually. Um, but and, I now from now on though, um, I will I will definitely say something like, okay, uh, just letting you know we're doing a practice auto land. If that works out with your flow. Certainly. Because yeah, I don't want to throw just screw everybody else up. You know, I'm going to do my best to try to get a practice auto land in there to keep the aircraft, you know, um, still certified for it. But um, if ATC says, no, we can't accommodate that, we have too many things going on, then I'll go, okay, let's don't do that. Well, you know, land. and it would be fair to say, Jeff, that if you come into Atlanta on 10 or 28, you can probably be rest assured that's mm, probably mm-hmm. not going to be an issue. You know, t- two true. seven, two seven, uh, probably more of an issue. Two seven left or nine right, right. Uh, probably uh, two six right and uh, nine and eight left would probably be also unless somebody's coming off the GA ramp on the, the cargo side will probably be okay. Yeah, for uh, those did, of you unfamiliar with Atlanta, the, the two ladder. Uh, options that Dana mentioned were the ones where most of the action occurs in Atlanta, where we have two runways on the north complex, two runways in the center complex, which used to be the south complex. And we have takeoffs and landings going on. And it's just amazing <laughs> the number going on simultaneously on almost every weather condition. And uh, yeah, But the southernmost runway, as Dana mentioned, uh, 28 and 10, it's kind of off you know, a couple of miles to the south and not a lot going on there. So you're probably okay not to worry about you know, interference. And also to raise our accuracy rating. Mm-hmm. Remember how I said, I remember there was another value that was associated with all this. And mm-hmm. additionally, when the weather is less than 200 foot ceiling or RVR is 2,000 f- feet or less, ATC will not allow any vehicles or aircraft in the ILS critical areas when arriving aircraft is inside the middle marker. CAT 2 or CAT 3 operations may be conducted without requesting any additional protection. So, in other words, when it's low IFR, they're going to protect in the states. They're going to protect uh, the uh, for CAT 2 or CAT 3 operations. So, yeah. absolutely, once you get down that low. So, we're all right. Yes. So, but the point of all this, I, to me, is that... And even stated in this report, and Nick, you mentioned it, that the crew kind of knew that there could be an issue with the signal being affected by other operations. And even that didn't (laughs) prevent this incident from occurring. And I just, um, going back to the children of the magenta, you know, if if the airplane's not doing what you want it to do, then click, 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 and disconnect things and just be a pilot and fly the darn airplane, and then you're going to be able to keep it on the runway. Yeah. But mm-hmm. anyway. Okay. Stepping down from my soapbox. It's a nice soapbox. Though. Well, thank you. I have it all polished up for today's show. For every show. <laughs> yeah, for every show. Um. Hey, our good friend Ray, my neighbor to the north in Alpharetta, sent us some feedback, and he said that we uh, he hopes that we're all having a great holiday season. Thank you, Ray. I think we all did. Mm-hmm. And he said, I thought the folk at APG might be interested in a book I received for Christmas. I wish Miami Rick were still on the show to comment on it. Me too. I think we all do. Uh, the uh, He sent in a um, – oh, hang on a second. I just realized that he sent in some audio feedback. What the heck? 
You put it between two images and it was hiding. I didn't see it. Did you guys know that there was audio feedback there? Yeah, no, but I, I see it now. Between yeah, those two <laughs> images, Jeff. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Nick. You saw it the whole, the whole time, didn't you? Yeah. You know so, what we were saying earlier about, you know, noticing something and not speaking up about it? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I just noticed that. So I'm going to push this button right here and see what uh, Ray has to say. That's his review of this book. And the name of the title of the book is Cargo Pilot by Christian Van Heist. <laughs> Let's see how Ray does with the pronunciation. Hi, Captains and Doctor and other APGs, especially those of you who live south of the equator and have enjoyed a Christmas barbie and perhaps an evening dip in the pool or the sea. I send you all my best wishes for the season and for the new year from my house in Atlanta, where the continual rain is trying to convert my front garden into a rice paddy. Anyways, on to what I want to talk about today. Unwrapping my gifts on the evening of the 24th, I came to one from my son and daughter-in-law and the two grandkids who live in Boston. It was a book titled Cargo Pilot by Christian von Haste. Now, I really want to warn you all against buying this book. Christian, I don't want to sound familiar, but I can't keep saying here von Haste, is a 747 pilot with Cargo Lux, and his book of some 200 pages contains some of the greatest aeroplane-related photographs I've seen. In fact, the dust jacket proclaims him as one of the world's leading aviation photographers. And uh, from what I see in this book, that is no hyperbole. We see the aircraft he has flown inside and out. We see the places he has flown to, from sunrise over the threshold of 07 left at Hong Kong, to finals to runway 19 at Cotopaxi Airport, 9,200 feet above sea level in Latacunga, Ecuador. There is a view of a traffic-clogged A9 seen from the finals to Schiphol's 18 right, the Paul de Barn, Anchorage's seven right, with a bank of fog obscuring the far half, and finals onto zero six at Indigili at Kinshasa, where ongoing construction, mere meters from the displaced threshold, continues almost unaware of the approaching aircraft. There's a sunset photo of the shadow of the seven four seven on the modern cargo terminal at O'Hare, and there is a shot in Lagos, Nigeria of the small hut with corrugated iron roof and hand-painted sign signifying it is the immigration office for cargo pilots. In the chapter on Africa, we see a mass of people around the door waiting to board the Fokker 50 that he flew in a previous job, and he describes the scene where 200 tickets have been sold for the 50-seater aircraft and how matters were eventually sorted out. And what I found really refreshing is that he treats this matter-of-factly without any snide remark or put-down of the locals. It is Africa. It can happen. In a previous job, Christian spent some time flying in Afghanistan, which he describes as some of the most fantastic adventures of my flying career. He states that Afghanistan has had a special place in his heart and from looking at the photos, such as the climb out from Maza-e-Sharif with craggy ridges just off the starboard wing, 
to snow-covered mountains not too distant from the far end of Runway 29. From an aisle 76 on short finals, to locals happily cycling along the airport taxiway, one can see the pleasure he got from flying there. Somehow while in Afghanistan he got to fly in an aisle 76 of North Korea's Air Corio, and he was invited on board a Russian Antonov AN-12 when it was taxiing to a different part of the airport. Of this visit he states, These aeroplanes are built to last and operate in the most extreme conditions. They beat Western-built aircraft there easily in every aspect. One chapter is devoted to photos of the night sky with beautiful captures of the aurora and the Milky Way from the clear skies at high altitudes, and he devotes a chapter to the mysterious red lights he witnessed in August 2014 at the times of the earthquakes in San Francisco and in Chile. Their 747 was flying between Hong Kong and Anchorage and was southeast from the Russian Kamchatka Peninsula when, far ahead, an orange glow began to appear far beneath them. As they approached, this light became more and more intense as a series of bright orange circles illuminated the clouds beneath them. Christian discounts theories of Asian shrimp boats, which he has seen and which do not cover as vast an area, nor do they have orange lights, and he provides comparative photos of these lights and the lights of the city of Winnipeg from roughly the same altitude and with the same camera. From this he ascertained that the area of the strange orange lights covered an area of about 35 to 40 kilometers in diameter. There are a couple of sad photos in the book too. From Afghanistan, there are photos of the Bamiyan Valley where he shows the area where the Taliban destroyed the huge statues of Buddha dating from the 6th century. Almost as sad are the shots from airports he has visited where fleets of aircraft are left to rot away. There is a rather poignant photo of a DC-862H in the Skymaster airline livery which has about it all the resigned look of a dog in a shelter awaiting rescue. Throughout the book, photographs generally have a small box with a note about each, and there is a good amount of descriptive prose as well, especially with shots of his aircraft and his experience of flying. His writing style is kind of reminiscent of Murchie and Gann, and his love of his job and his profession comes through strongly. There is a point where Christian says, there will be a day when I will sit quietly at home and will be remembering all of these places, runways and short finals. Life within a cockpit is window on adventure. All in all, this is an exceptionally fine volume. So much more than a coffee table book, it is one that can be returned to over and over and each time one will find something new and beautiful in it. So why do I warn APGers against getting it? Well, if they're like me, they could well find themselves experiencing something way worse than APG syndrome. I found the book awoke in me a lust to be a cargo pilot and live, experience the magic of Christian's life. Of course, there was a small matter of retirement age. But I felt that I could visit uh, a local high school and for a buck or two acquire documents 
in air quotes, that would show me to be much younger than I really am. To be true, Christian has pointed out that the life of a cargo pilot has its downsides and is not for everyone. Being away from home for three weeks at a time, sudden changes in schedules and destinations, inability to make personal plans far in advance. But then there are his pictures and his writing and the magic places and the aeroplanes. It's always the aeroplanes. In Cargo Pilot, Mijnheer van Heest has managed to formulate a siren song that will do its best to tear you from your current job. So, be warned, if you do buy this book, do make sure you have a sturdy mast to be bound to. And that's it from Ray Williams in Alpharetta, Georgia. Cheers, folks. Thanks, Ray. That was a great review. And Tiffany, our APG librarian, I hope you're listening. Yeah. We'll have to add that to the library. Add it to the list. Very nicely yep. done, Ray. Yes. You, I love you just made one this. mistake, Ray. They're not called cargo pilots. They're called trash haulers, okay? <laughs> Freight dogs. Freight yeah, dogs. Freight dogs. Yeah. Ha- so, hauling, yeah, the life- rub- hauling rubber dog poop out of Hong Kong. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> so the life of an airline pilot, especially long haul fly, uh, pilot, is tough. But I think we all agree that being a freight dog or cargo pilot or trash hauler or whatever you want to call it is even more demanding than what we do. For sure. But it seems to have its uh, lighter side. Uh, and certainly if you're a good yeah. photographer as this gentleman is, uh, he obviously – Thoroughly enjoys his work. Right. Making the most of it. Absolutely. Sure. Yep. Thanks again, Ray, for the uh, wonderful review. And uh, that looks like a book that uh, we'll all have to take a look at. Yeah. And okay. Um, moving on to Eric. A-R-I-C-H. I don't think I've ever. I, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm assuming it's pronounced Eric. Mm. I know an Eric spell who spells his name E R I C H, but it looks okay. That sounds yeah, I right. I might have said Eric. Eric. Okay, I'm not hearing the difference, Eric. but okay. Um, oh, a rich. Perhaps he's very wealthy. <laughs> oh, he's a, a rich a guy. Rich, <laughs> yeah. a rich guy. Okay, ah, gotcha. There it is. <laughs> um, hi all, Captain Jeff, Doc, Steph, old pilot, FNG and MR. <laughs> I'm not sure who he's referring to. I I think he's referring to Dana. I I (laughs) think he's definitely referring to me. Stands for the new guy. Yeah. Oh, oh, Uh, the freaking new guy. Yeah, exactly. uh, Fat new guy. One of the two. (laughs) No, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I've been listening since shortly after Jeff, not the good looking one. That would be me. Thank you. Uh, Appearance on the other APG show. Okay. AGP. Uh, Oh, AGP. Okay, gotcha. Uh, I have sent in a few feedbacks, but probably long forgotten. Yeah, well, hopefully. <laughs> I was listening to another show. Yes, there are others. No, they're not. And, yeah. Not we don't like them very them. much. No, I'm just oh, kidding. Just, we love them all. Yep, fix it in post. <laughs> and heard a very interesting episode of Hangar Flying from a localish, to me, not you, reporter and pilot. Captain Jeff, you may have even run across him. 
No, I didn't. I have nothing. I, I <laughs> no, wasn't there. No, no. I did not run over him. <laughs> and if I did, it was his fault because yeah. he was drinking too much. Um, anyway, uh, since he was in the Air Force as a T-37 instructor, as well as flying the C-130 and C-141. As a civilian, he has flown the 727, the A320, 7.5, 7.6, and currently 777. He also owns and flies a 1940-ish Lescombe. Anyhow, he did a video from his local hangar, Kilo Golf Oscar Oscar, Nevada County Airport. It's a slightly less busy than uh, KATL or Heathrow, but maybe has some more interesting characters hanging around. There are several interviews with real pilots, he puts in capital letters, R-E-A-L, real pilots, from the days before glass screens and computers. I hope this link works. And he, he gave us the link, and it did work. And uh, yes, I don't. I do know, well, I don't know him personally. I did know him from the Air Force. The guy's name is um, uh, one, two, oh, three, four. Not, not one. Juan, J-U-A-M, Juan. Uh, but, uh, shoot, let me press this button here and get the actual, I don't know if he uses his real name or not in this. Um, Blancolino, or Blancolario, I think is his YouTube channel name. And uh, and I, you know, when you go on YouTube and you look at things uh, for, you know, things that you're interested in, then it kind of throws up a whole bunch of other things that YouTube things that you might be interested in. And I, that his videos came up in that setting and, uh, he was covering, um, the, uh, there's some kind of a Oroville dam, I guess that is in risk of collapsing or something like that in Northern California. And also the, uh, fires that they had, um, Last month, a couple of months ago, um, he was covering that, and uh, he's a great uh, YouTuber, great video videographer, and a great reporter. And he flies for a major legacy carrier. And uh, but seeing this hangar talk video that he did very recently at Nevada County Airport is very interesting and definitely worth watching. But I don't know him personally, so um, that's all I have to say about that. I have something to say. We're okay. all real pilots because we all started flying airplanes like the uh, 141 or uh, um, Dana, what was your uh, first real airplane? In fact, you're still flying a real airplane, goddammit. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I flew the Phantom and the Hunter and I, I might fly a glass cockpit now, old chap, but we're all real pilots. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I don't think he meant that as a uh, as a uh, negative thing, you know, throwing our way. A um, slate to all of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all of us. Yeah, because it is in capitals, real pilots. Yeah. So, you know, these guys are like, um, you know, they're old timers. And, but uh, they are. They've been around. He's, he's right, though. I mean, it's great to go out to your local FBO airport. And we're talking small airports here. And the one that's in the um, video suspiciously looks like every other small FBO building I've ever been in out here on the East Coast. Um, you walk in, just a small room. There's like a couch, you know, coffee. Coffee that's small been the, sitting on the burner for like burning, two or three hours. Burning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And everyone's just sitting around and, you know, the stories become a little bit more exaggerated with every hour that goes by. And uh, it's good company and, and a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, you know, it, to be honest with you, I think 
have to, I'd have to look, but I think it's somewhere in the thirty, the number of thirty uh, of different aircraft I have actually flown in my in my life. Um, a lot of it instructing, a lot of it uh, just putting around, and I've spent a lot of time doing that hangar flying with quote unquote real pilots. Uh, but that's how we all learn actually is that we learn from each other and we become better because of it. Just like I learned, uh, from my initial flight instructor and learned as I, you know, became more mature pilot and, uh, you know, got to fly with guys like Jeff do what I, that helped me, uh, become a real, yeah, he, he's a real captain. mature pilot, pilot. Yeah. Man. Real mature, but so, I am you know, mature. We we all Anyways. we all learn from each other, and, and, and whether you're at, at the local air, my point is whether you're, you're at the local airport, uh, around old guys been around for a long time, or you you know you're sitting in an airline uh, cockpit, uh, it's, you're still doing hangar flying uh, every time you get in the airplane, and you always you always cut up, so it's uh, it's a great way to learn. Yeah, it is, and definitely worth. Um looking at this guy's YouTube channel, um, Blanca Lirio or whatever. I don't know how, how you pronounce it, but, uh, anyway, uh, we'll I, have I listened this. to the interview. Actually, I, I was just going to have a glance at it, but I, I watched it all. It brilliant. I thoroughly enjoyed mm -hmm. it. And you're quite right. People like that. Who he, who he was talking to, I, you know, they're, they're always going to be well missed when they go because they're just full of great stories. Living history. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. One, one could say that we're doing that right now. Yeah, in our exactly own way. Exactly, in our yeah, own way. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll shed a tear when you're gone, Dana. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. That's Such really fun. nice. Wow. <laughs> oh, well, so we got very sentimental yeah, around here. I don't know. <laughs> my, my little pinky toe just got hurt. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was trying like, to be nice. Was it like a backhanded compliment or something? <laughs> yeah, what do yeah, call I, know. That? I don't even wow. think it was that. <laughs> no, no, it didn't reach that level. No. All right, oh, nice okay. talking to you guys. I'll see you later. <laughs> no, Dana, no, 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 no. He's just kidding. Oh, okay. I know. I know. Uh, let's see. Um, Liz, are we at two hours yet? <laughs> yep, we are. No? Are we? Yes, we are. Okay. Well, then you know what that means. It's time for this week's installment of... Plain Tales. And uh, this one is bathtubs, potatoes, shoes, and flat irons. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. Bathtubs, potatoes, shoes, and flat irons. Gaze around the fabulous Smithsonian Air and Space Museums in Washington. And you'll see some wonderful looking aircraft, and some damned ugly ones as well. Of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but even so, it takes a squinting, sideways look through very dark glasses to make some exhibits look attractive. One such aircraft might be the Northrop M2F3. As I write this, it was in this very month, back in 1972, that this bulbous, wingless metal bathtub took its last flight with NASA research pilot John Mankey at the controls to 71,500 feet and safely back to Earth. 
Of course, if you give something enough thrust, it will probably fly, even if it's just for a while. But having got it into the air, it has to have some redeeming features, or it won't stand a chance of landing safely again. The family of aircraft that the M2F3 belonged to had very few redeeming features, but just enough to do the job. And the job was to descend from very high level, as a spacecraft re-entering from Earth's orbit would do, and come down in a controllable manner through the ever-thickening atmosphere to make a safe landing on a convenient runway, so that the vehicle could be used again. Up to this point, the conclusion of a space flight was re-entry in a capsule, which was generally on a ballistic flight path over which the astronauts had very little control. During deceleration, the G-forces were very high, upwards of 8G, and landing was courtesy of parachutes. What's more, the potential landing area was vast, with no real way to alter it once the arrival angles were set. It was in the early 60s as the Apollo program was gearing up to take the first men up to walk on a planet other than Earth that the concept of the lifting body took off, so to say. I don't think that Roy Scroggs would ever have imagined that his patent registered in 1917 for the very first lifting body conceived, would ever be used for such a lofty purpose, but it was him that came up with the idea. A tailor from Eugene in Oregon, he designed a noseless, long, narrow delta that would provide safe, economical performance to everyday flying enthusiasts. His design was much ridiculed, so when he finally registered a full-size machine as November Charlie 10648, he called it the last laugh. Following initial test flights, his detractors proved correct, as a lifting body is very inefficient at the sort of speeds he could manage, and he gave up on the project. But little did he know that his ideas would later form the basis for spacecraft design and he would, indeed, get the last laugh. I should probably explain what a lifting body actually is and how it flies. Imagine a dumpy little aircraft of conventional design and take off both the wings and the tailplanes so that all you have is the fuselage and the fin. That is a lifting body. Directional stability and control usually requires two or even three fins, and pitch control was achieved by attaching elevons onto the rear of the fuselage. Of course, without wings to provide lift, the lifting body has to create all it needs from the shape of the fuselage, mainly the underside. Almost every shape imaginable can create lift to one degree or another, and most parts of an aircraft contribute to the overall amount of lift. We only tend to refer to the wings because they provide the most. If we assume that a brick has a glide angle of 90 degrees, which means it's coming vertically straight down, and a sport glider has a glide angle of around 1 degree, hardly descending at all, then more or less everything else lies in between. 
the average airliner glides at around 5 degrees, which isn't much different from a Cessna 172, which achieves 5.2 degrees. A lifting body can manage a glide angle of 16 degrees. Not bad at all, considering it doesn't have wings. What the lifting body design had to achieve was to be able to fly in a pretty precise and controllable manner through just about the greatest speed range imaginable. At the start of re-entry, it would be doing around 17,000 miles an hour. Once into the upper reaches of the atmosphere, it would become hypersonic, starting at Mach 25 and slowing to Mach 5 around 3,400 miles an hour. As it came lower, it would move to the supersonic range between Mach 5 and Mach 1.5, that's 3,400 down to 1,000 miles an hour, and then into the transonic region of Mach 1.5 to Mach 0.8, that's a mere 1,000 down to 550 miles an hour. From there, it would be subsonic, as it continued to slow from 550 miles an hour to a landing speed of around 200 miles an hour. I don't know about you, but I find that just getting my head around the enormity of that challenge almost beyond me. The problems involved must have seemed impossibly daunting, but in NASA and the space agencies in other countries, there were men and women willing and capable of taking on that challenge. To summarise, the craft had to survive re-entry heating, it had to limit the deceleration g-forces to only around 3g, it had to be manoeuvrable in three distinct phases, hypersonic, supersonic and subsonic, and then achieve a conventional landing. It had to have a sufficiently low liftover drag ratio so that it could glide successfully. It had to be large enough to carry an adequate payload volume and weight. And finally, it needed to be reusable. So were born a series of the most unlikely-looking aircraft since Roy Scroggs got into the air, only to around 10 feet, mind you, in the last laugh. It started with the Northrop M2F2, an all-metal, blunt-nosed Delta design with a bulbous, rounded belly and a flat upper surface above which protruded a bubble canopy. It had a pair of fins on either side of the rear end with rudders and split elevons, both on the top and the bottom of the rear fuselage, but I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. Let's go to the remote desert flight test area that housed the NASA Flight Research Center at Edwards Air Force Base. Working in there was a small band of uniquely qualified people who had been brought together to test fly the Bell XS-1, which became the X-1 Glamorous Glenis that took Chuck Yeager supersonic for the first time. It was a place where test pilots, engineers and technicians breathed the same air and walked the same corridors. In 1963, the lifting body concept started when an enthusiastic engineer, Dale Reed, 
circumvented all the normal bureaucratic channels by getting a band of volunteers together to work on his ideas. They unofficially designed and worked on their creation on a shoestring, financed by the money they were given to maintain the facility. In their spare time, they begged, borrowed and stole what they needed to get things done. When they wanted a rocket engine, they got their hands on an old rocket that had powered early experimental aircraft for nearly 30 years. They managed to get museums to give up their exhibits and even reuse the motor from Chuck Yeager's Bell X-1. Their first flying creation was actually the M2F1, M for manned, F for flight, which was knocked up out of plywood over a tubular metal frame and towed aloft by an R4D, which is a Navy C-47, or as some know it, a Douglas DC-3. The unlikely wooden aircraft was nicknamed the Flying Bathtub. A number of the fabricators and engineers were members of the Experimental Aircraft Association, who had worked together on previous programs in the Flight Research Centre's unofficial skunk works. It was a simple aircraft, just created to examine the problems of low-speed control and performance, but flown by an exclusive club of pilots, such as Milt Thompson, Bruce Peterson, Chuck Yeager and others. Three on the list went on to become astronauts. Fred Hayes went to the Apollo program and was involved in the near disaster that befell Apollo 13. Joe Engel and Dick Scobie became shuttle commanders for space flights. The success of the flight trials ensured proper status and funding for the project, so it progressed to the M2F2 all-metal aircraft, which became known as the Flying Potato. Also a purely gliding prototype, it was carried under the wing of the same B-52 that launched the X-15 rocket research aircraft. It was on one of these gliding tests that NASA pilot Bill Peterson nearly lost his life. If, like me as a kid, you ever watched The Six Million Dollar Man, you will have seen his crash many times. Patterson was distracted by a helicopter near his approach path, and in a machine that suffered from poor roll control, he drifted on a crosswind into an area of the lake bed landing area where there weren't any runway markings. Unable to judge his height, he fired the landing rockets but hit the ground before his gear was fully deployed. He rolled his aircraft six times along the lake bed before coming to rest upside down. They did indeed rebuild him, but sadly he lost the sight in one eye because of an infection. The success of the trial flights grew, and before long other designs were getting into the act. 
Northrop moved on to a rocket-powered version called the HL-10, Horizontal Landing 10th Design, which was similar to the M2F2, but with three fins. It flew well and reached 90,000 feet at Mach 1.86. Martin built the X-23 Prime, an unmanned vehicle which was launched atop an Atlas launch rocket to around 100,000 feet. It was designed to deploy a Drogue Balut and then be captured in mid-air by a modified C-130 Hercules, which was actually achieved in one of the three flights. Martin also trialled the X-24 series of craft. The A model was, like the Northrop design, short, fat and bulbous, but using its XLR-11 four-chambered rocket engine, it got to Mach 1.35 at over 71,000 feet. The B model was a flattened Delta with a pointed nose which flew to Mach 1.5 at 74,000 feet and despite being a decidedly cooler design was dubbed the Flying Flatiron. Several other versions were envisaged but never flown but one mock-up, the SV-5J, was used in several movies as a spaceship prop. The Northrop designs progressed to the M2F3, which, after Bill Patterson's crash, was the same damaged machine but rebuilt and redesigned with a third fin to aid in stability. It got up to Mach 1.613 and on its last flight, on the 20th of December 1972, reached 71,500 feet. There were other lifting body designs being developed elsewhere. The USAF contracted Boeing to build a military space plane that could fulfil various missions, including bombing and reconnaissance, and as a space interceptor. The Boeing design was a low-winged delta shape with winglets for control and named the X-20 Dinosaur. No, I'm not kidding... They called it the dinosaur. Short for the Dynamic Saurer. Their program ran from 1957 to 1963, cost $660 million and was cancelled just after construction started. The main problems appear to have come from uncertainty over which booster was to be used to launch the craft and a lack of clear goal for the project. In the UK, the British Aircraft Corporation was designing a reusable space vehicle under English Electric at Wharton. Simply named Mustard, it stood for Multi-Unit Space Transport and Recovery Device and was a novel design. A delta-winged craft with a blended wing design, it would be launched as a triplet of vehicles or up to five depending on the needs, each neatly nestled against the other. The outer two machines were there to act as boosters and when their job was done, they would detach from the centre one and glide back to Earth. The centre module would use its engine to continue its journey into orbit and re-enter to glide back when its task was completed. <laughs> 
In this way, every part of the assembly could be reused. The British government shelved the project in 1970, but key mustard staff spent time working at North American Rockwell, contributing to the study that would ultimately lead to the space shuttle. The Russians were a little late to the game with the MiG-105 spiral, which was built, probably in response to the USAF's dinosaur. It had a cute upturned nose, leading it to be named the Shoe. Work began in 1965 and continued sporadically until 1978, but it did achieve eight successful test flights. That was, with a few exceptions, the conclusion of the early lifting body experimental craft, and with the development of better ablative materials, the designs went forward to winged re-entry vehicles such as the Space Shuttle and the Russian Buran. The early work that came out of Edwards has continued to be used with more advanced machines such as the HL-20, which came from a NASA and the North Carolina State University collaboration, and progressed forward to the Dream Chaser project and the Orbital Science Prometheus spacecraft. To the east, the Russian Clipper project started in 2000 but is now on hold. The Virgin Galactic spacecraft design, despite setbacks, is getting closer to success and India's RLVTD mini space shuttle continues to progress. However, all these spacecraft owe an enormous debt to those who came before and, for a while, mustard, potatoes, bathtubs, shoes and flat irons ruled the wrist. Good stuff. Wow. Fantastic. More than you wanted to know about, what did you call that? Um, <laughs> lifting something bodies. Flying, uh, <laughs> lifting bodies. I, I try to think of some reference I could bring for Miami Rick, because he's a lifting body, isn't he? <laughs> but yeah. uh, I, ha- well, I have I like to put it. a quick thanks in to Micah. Uh, he's the guy that suggested it, reminded me of the date of uh, that flight of the uh, M2F2, and uh, that pre- provided me the germ to uh, produce that one. And actually, once I got into it, I loved it. It was a great story. So, and I, I loved the fact that they they were stealing money from, uh, you know, the, the fund that they required to maintain their buildings <laughs> so that they could yeah, start the project. Oh, it's great. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Well, in, in an effort to uh, provide some entertainment for and educate, uh, edutainment, for our video watchers, I think I broke the uh, <laughs> hangout front by side. Your permanently a cartoon, is that right? You it, was good, so. it was a good effort, though, for the uh, pictures when you were able to put them up. Yeah, yeah well, I had sometimes the flying potato, I like, the flying I like the bathtub, bathtub. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I like the, <laughs> the flying slinky? spiral, the slinky. The yeah, spiral. very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I had some others in there, but uh, apparently I overloaded the. Uh, Technology <laughs> completely broken. It's had enough. We'll <laughs> have to even... steal some money from the building funds to improve the technology. <laughs> I can't even turn on the FaceTime camera. It's just like uh, it's not recognizing any camera that I have attached to my computer at this point. So you're just going to have to watch my avatar and uh, the rings of sound or whatever. 
Huh. But that was uh, interesting stuff. Yeah, it's amazing that uh, you can get almost anything to fly, sort of. S- sort of. I tell you what amazed me was the quality of the test pilots. They got involved in the initial product um, because those guys turned out to be, you know, they were fantastic. Um, and many of them moved on to the, uh, you know, full-blown, uh, become full-blown astronauts. So uh, there, mm. there weren't very many of them, and they were just this small cadre of fantastic engineers, great fabricators, and wonderful test pilots. It's a great story. Absolutely. Good stuff. Thank you, Nick, for doing that, as always. We all appreciate it. Absolutely. And... Uh, let's see. Where were we before? I think we I were. I believe number five. Number five. five is correct. Perfect. Is there any hiding secret audio in this one? I don't think so. No. I think the uh, audio that we had for um, Ray kind of caught us all off guard. Uh, Ray, you, you devil, you. <laughs> anyway. Um, so let's see here. Let's do number five. Steve. Writes, hi, APG. Let's see. I don't think this is Steve. Uh, let's see. Who is this, Steve? Uh, never mind. I can't figure it out. Uh, started listening to your show last year and love hearing the insider aviation take on aviation news stories. Keep up the great work. My question is about using GPS as a passenger. One of the best things about flying is scoring a window seat. Yes, I agree with you. And looking at the scenery from 35,000 feet. I then want to know exactly what I'm looking at and where I am. I have loaded offline maps apps, so I don't need the data. Unfortunately, the built-in GPS in my iPhone works sparingly, if never, during flight. The IFE maps are not detailed enough to my liking. Do you have any recommendations for fitting my iPhone with a more powerful GPS antenna that can track the flight's progress in flight and actually work on my offline maps app. Thanks for your help, Steve. Now, Steve, I can tell you that I have a device that, um, I don't know, I bought a couple of years ago back when, uh, before we have the present EFB that we use now that has built in GPS and it's called, uh, it's made by a company called bad elf. And it's a a very small GPS receiver, and it is has Bluetooth, so it connects to your iPhone or your iPad or whatever device you have, and it's pretty accurate. Uh, But you got to get it like right up against the window, Um, so that's the the issue you're going to have in the passenger cabin with a GPS device, unless you're like right there smashing whatever device it is up against the window. And even then, you may not get a very good signal. Um, you know, I can usually get my phone to work okay on most aircraft. I've actually found, um, actually, I, I don't know. I was trying to decide if it was easier because I usually fly either on, you know, the uh, Airbus A320, A321 products or Boeing 737. And it seems to be pretty equal across the board there in terms of how often I get GPS signal if I was going to use something like my ForeFlight app uh, for for tracking. But sometimes it's very reliable, um, especially if you have Wi-Fi access, too. That seems to help. Mm-hmm. I, I think part of it might be that he's offline. Like if you're using mm-hmm. ForeFlight, right. it's going to interact a lot better. For example, you know, with us, uh, Jeff and I, we, we both have the iPad, which is, you know, is, is the company-issued iPad that we use. 
and it, it its internal GPS works pretty good for us to be able to mm-hmm. track for for you know on our our work apps. Uh, another one that is an an external uh, GPS that you can uh, Bluetooth is the, the dual dual excuse me the dual. Uh, GPS, which is available online, but that, you know, that now you're talking about a hundred dollars for that one. I actually have it one from when I was back in GA and it's an excellent, uh, tool and, and, uh, not supposed to use it at work, so I don't, but it is an excellent backup for, uh, for the GPS in the, uh, in the iPad. So if I'm having a lot of problems and sometimes, and I really want to know where I am, then I'll, I'll pull out the other one, but I don't, you know, necessarily use it really. Um, <clears throat> of course you don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. So, you know, the uh, the Bad Elf company also has a little device that plugs right into your lightning port on your iPhone. However, I'm not sure it's going to do any better than the built-in GPS you already have in your iPhone. You're still going to need to get that little thing up against the window. And I guess you could use that with a lightning to USB extender uh, to... Uh, or a lightning to female lightning. I don't know how, how you would do it, but I guess you could figure out a way to get it up against the window. And the other thing I thought of is the um, uh, Sean uh, Chuplis, uh, who is the uh, proprietor of Crew Dog Electronics, has that uh, that ADSB um, GPS device Stratex. Uh, that's but that's mm-hmm. like a couple hundred dollars. Um, yeah, well, and I. You know, you can look at the Stratus one, you can look at the Stratex, you can look at the open source ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you could build your own if you're really uh, <laughs> but you're talking about savvy like, like that. If you're you talking about a significant amount of yeah. money. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a way, there's ways to do it. And it would also, if you took that Stratex with the little suction cups and like stuck it up against the window, I think nowadays, I don't think there's any regulation for most airlines that says you can't use that, although you might draw some attention to yourself well you don't want to be using adsb out <laughs> you know yeah. um but I, I don't, that, that won't, those are all just receivers so that's yeah that should be okay i i really i honestly think that the best way would be to get you know an aviation app such as full flight if you're going to spend mm-hmm. any money first try that out on the on, you know in in then if that you know what also works well that that almost always reliably comes up with a spot on the map. I don't know if it's enough resolution or detail for his liking, but um, just flight radar twenty four. Mm-hmm. Usually pretty accurate. It'll show you where you are, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and airports nearby, and that type of stuff. Yeah, and that's what it comes down to is is the app, the app that's installed because what he's doing is an offline map, and it's not going to really interact with the GPS. I don't think very well. Yeah, it will. It will. I mean, if if you have that map information there, it's just, I think the actual issue that he's having is the fact that he's not getting a good GPS signal from where he's sitting, even at the window. Um, Yeah, you you need to have a reasonable view of the sky, basically. Uh, And the satellites over over above us, they're not really to one side of us. Right. You you need to see a reasonable number. uh, And um, from the cockpit window, which are angled, you get a better view of the sky above. Mm -hmm. So uh, when our iPads are up against the cockpit window, because that's where they're mounted, we usually get a GPS signal. But it's pretty weak, because as soon as I pull the, um, the gold... Because uh, you know we're Airbus, so we have gold-plated um, windshields. You, yeah, know. you don't want that sun to like yeah, give your wrinkles. Yeah, you know, uh, they're, they're, yes, they're 
sunscreens. <laughs> uh, it kills the signal because you know gold's yeah. a very good conductor. But uh, I used to have. Is this a bad in between the uh, ca- the caviar that you're uh, eating and uh, the champagne that you're yeah, sipping? Yeah, usually we're not really interested in our position because <laughs> the foods <laughs> the foods are good. Um, you're quite right. Uh, so uh, yeah, I used to have a bad elf, uh, the little. Uh, the remote one with a Bluetooth. I had the basic one, but it worked perfectly. It was really good because there's a little tray beside our cockpit window and you could just drop it in there. Bluetooth to the uh, iPad and was always very reliable. Uh, you'd have to probably glue a sucker on it uh, to, <laughs> yes. and then plant it against your window. But that would be quite right. a discreet way of uh, getting a position. I like the one that plugs in the bottom, uh, though. That one looks quite neat. Uh, the one with mm-hmm. the um. Yeah, the uh, what's the lightning connector? Uh, I like that. Yeah, it's it, it's all about just getting it up against that window as close as you can. Yeah, that's really. that's the trick. And I think Jeff's idea, if you want to, you know, only spend a hundred bucks of getting an extender cable so you could position that against the window, that that would work mm-hmm. quite well. But now I I would I've been asked in the past uh, passengers who are concerned and. Quite honestly, most app geeks are concerned that what they do might affect the aircraft systems. Uh, if uh, I'm okay with having GPS receivers uh, running on the aircraft, I go, no, no, no problem at all. Because after mm-hmm. all, they're only receiving. Uh, it's only when right. you've got transmitters mm-hmm. that I would be vaguely concerned. Mm-hmm. And even nowadays, I'm not that concerned because uh, obviously, uh, you know, there are lots of gear going on down in the cabin there. Right. All right. Well, I hoped, I hope that that helped Steve. Uh, maybe he has a few tips that he can look into a little bit further. And uh, yeah, that's the best we can do for you, though. All right. Um, moving on. Looks like our next item is from Paul. And he says, um, hi, ABG crew. I really enjoy the podcast. Just ran across this article and thought I would forward along since if memory serves me correctly captain nick did a plain tale about this story and uh, this story well nick what story is he talking about well it was one of the one of our aircraft is missing uh series uh, of plain tales they did about aircraft that was stolen um, um mainly speaking by american mechanics so if you see, Americans. Yes. If you see an American mechanic walking around and climbing into an airplane, I suggest you put handcuffs on thing. them straight away. <laughs> but having said that, only do it on a Friday night when everyone's drunk, because that's yeah. generally when it happened. Um, but uh, there were a number, uh, including this uh, C-130 that was uh, pinched uh, out of a, a UK, well, it's, it's an RAF base, but it was a USAF uh establishment that was on it it's uh, just the kind of thing that we do well yeah i know he, he just wanted to get home to his girlfriend you guys are such yeah. good lovers um <laughs> or actually Romantics, he was his really. wife to be absolutely correct uh, uh-huh. but he was a very upset young man who was desperate to get home and he thought the best way was to steal a 130 and fly it home and that was going to be the business uh but uh he uh he flew it at night on his own, which is no mean task, uh, considering it would normally take in those days on those Herc's a crew of uh, four or five. Um, he did it on his own, and once more he managed to get on the radio, and they organized a phone patch so he could uh, speak through the radio to uh, his wife back home and trying to convince him to land it safely. 
And, uh, oh, I see a picture of you, Jeff. You've got your eyes closed, but uh, we'll ignore that. Um, and um, <laughs> he uh, eventually disappeared uh, over the English Channel. Um, and uh, one assumes he lost control of the airplane. And uh, although <laughs> they, they did indeed launch, I think, an F-100 uh, to try to uh, intercept him to in the inverted commas assist him, and a 130 from the same base who chased after him. Um, but uh, he crashed. Now, the, uh, the skeptics will, will claim that he was shot down, but uh, technology was pretty poor in those days for intercepting uh, an aircraft at night at low level uh, and shoot him down. Um, so I think that's in very much in doubt. And... The F-100 pilot uh, certainly he didn't even complete an inception, didn't find the guy. Uh, but uh, anyway, what we've got here is a chap who's uh, devoted a lot of energy because of his interest in the story to sailing his boat around uh, the English Channel with sonar equipment, and he believes he might have found the aircraft. He thinks he has found the aircraft, but the only evidence he gives in this uh, article is that he found a wheel and some aluminium, and he knows it's aluminium because of the pattern of corrosion on it. Uh, and from my point of view, until he has some more definite information that this is the accident aircraft, I'm going to stay quite uh, quiet on the subject, be quite sceptical, because if you think about it, the Channel uh, and the Second World War, just think of the number of aircraft uh, multi-engine aircraft included that crashed in uh, to the channel uh, there must be dozens even hundreds that are down there and plucking the hercules that went down from amongst all those i think will be quite a task so until he gets a serial number uh, uh and something of it even if he identifies as the hercules there's no guarantee that it's the Hercules that crashed. There's probably have been several Hercules crashes over the channel, I would uh, guess. But that's only, uh, you know, uh, only well, Think of the number of American mechanics that have stolen C-130s <laughs> over the English <laughs> channel. Dozens of them. There, there's dozens of those. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, at least. <laughs> yeah. You guys are dumping airplanes all over the world, so it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me if you had half a dozen in the channel. So, uh, yeah, exactly right. Uh, okay. I, I will wait to see uh, more from the story. Quite yeah, honestly. I think we need more definitive evidence. Yeah, but he does say that uh, this is a story which uh, has rarely been told. Well, that's not true because I've told it. <laughs> well, you told it rarely. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> Medium rarely, actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but it was well done. Oh, in the end. Oh, well, oh, I see oh, what you sorry. did there. <laughs> Just oh. hit the groan button on that one. Boom! <laughs> Bam. <laughs> Okay, we, we all bow to Steph. <laughs> I'm sorry. The king of puns, yeah. or the queen no, of no, puns. No, no, that's definitely not me. Ah. He was in the chat room earlier, if he's still uh, there. I'm not okay. sure. So, all right. He says, actually, at one point, the seabed is a lonely place. Well, actually, considering the number of pilots that are down there from the Second World War, I think you'd be in good company. <laughs> yeah, it's not lonely at all. No, not at all. <laughs> lots, lots of dead pilots down there. Well, thanks, Paul. Hope that... Uh, uh, or th thanks for sending that in and uh, glad we got Nick's take on that situation. Uh, moving on to number seven, Alex, three questions for the crew. Wow. Three, huh? Okay. The job is uh, a quiet week. 
Yes. Hi, all. Uh, not sent some feedback in a while, as I think they have been getting lost in the system. Yeah, that's what happened, Alex. It's getting lost in the system. Right, Liz? No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, if, if, if you send us e-back, uh, feedback, uh, we don't, like, throw it away or, you know, if we if we don't really get to it at a certain point, then perhaps resend it or something because, you know, we uh, sometimes things do get lost in translation. Anyway, uh, it's a new year, so I've been in a reflective mood. I have three questions, so hang on to your hats. Number one, I was thinking about a flight from three to five years ago on the way back from Dubai on an Emirates A380. Had the pleasure of being on the top deck, but at the very back of the aircraft. Halfway into the flight, the captain turned up. At this stage, I was less knowledgeable about flying and thought, who was flying the plane? Now that APG has imparted me with more knowledge, I know it's an inflatable pilot doing it. <laughs> think that the 50% APG accuracy is at work. Yes. Ding. Yep, ding. In all seriousness, we were at the back of the aircraft, row 25, which is equal to row 70-ish of the lower deck, which is all economy. He promptly then sat down to have a chat to his son for the next hour. I know that pilots, etc., can take a rest in the cabin, as Captain Nick has mentioned, but I would have expected that to be restricted to the front five to ten rows. Uh, is that the case? Yeah, I don't know what the rules are at uh, Emirates when it comes to this sort of thing. He was probably obviously on his break, uh, his rest break. I don't know what, I guess each airline probably has rules and regulations regarding, you know, if you're on your rest break, where you must spend it. And, uh, but I can't speak for this airline. Nick, do you have any ideas? I, well, I don't know about Emirates either, but I would suspect if he was going to be down the back of the aircraft at that length of time, he was probably in a crew that was augmented with two captains, two first officers. So there was an entire replacement crew up the front. So when you've got a, a captain and a first officer working, it doesn't really matter where you are in the aircraft because uh, if you're the sole commander of the aircraft, then you do need to be sensible and stay within reasonable touch of the front end. Um, but if there's another captain up the front there, then you're not the least bit concerned. You know, you can go down uh, without any worries at all. Our company has reasonably relaxed regulations about that it doesn't restrict your movement around the cabin if you want to move elsewhere and you're on your break uh, but it does say if you're going to sleep you need to use the designated uh, flight deck crew rest area which is at the forward part of the aircraft um, and personally if i am the captain occasionally i will wander down the back and uh, visit the rear galley uh, and just say hello to the crew but that's just in passing and particularly if i haven't met them uh, earlier uh, in the briefing or something before the flight, but uh, I, I won't usually go down to the very after the aircraft because if something happens, it's a pretty hard job to get back up to the front again if the airplane's in an unusual position or everyone suddenly stood up for some reason. So, uh, yeah, uh, but I, I, I fully imagine in this case that he had uh, another captain, another first officer, uh, up the front end looking after things while he was chatting to his son. Very much likely, yes. Okay, well, let's move on. Can fighter jets intercept planes for training missions? Again, a flight back to the UK from UAE. 
We were around Syrian airspace, but this was back in 2013, so at this stage, still safe. Below, a huge thunderstorm was raging below. Then I saw a fighter jet next to the, or near to the aircraft to the in the night sky. He was on the left side. Pilot did not mention anything, so why would a jet fighter intercept a commercial airliner? There was no hijacking or issue with a plane that was mentioned, and I don't think the pilot was lost. Could it have been for training purposes? Should the captain have not informed the passengers, even if it was training? And would they know? Maybe it was a UFO. I guess it was I a UFO. Answer this one. Oh, okay. No. It was probably a UFO then. Um, that was an easy answer. If it's a night and we're being intercepted, no, I wouldn't mention anything to the passengers because the chances of uh, the interceptor being seen are pretty remote. And there's no point waking everyone up, doing a PA, just so everyone on the aircraft can uh, get concerned. Uh, there's usually a very benign reason why you've been intercepted. Uh, it might have been you out of communications for a short time. Uh, and uh, they're just checking everything's all right before they disappear off and let you go on your way. Uh, so what's the point of waking everyone up and getting them all upset? Um, the chances of you actually spotting an aircraft are pretty remote normally at night because normally the window blinds are all down. There's very few people looking out. So that's the reason I wouldn't wake everyone up. Um, yes, uh, it is possible, certainly in my time, when I was a fighter pilot to... Um, intercept civil aircraft if uh, the captain on the civil aircraft had written the magic code word embellish on his flight plan that would indicate to the uk uh, air defense authorities that he was willing to act as a target and once he came into the uk air defense region that would be confirmed with uh, air traffic control and then he would uh, yeah we would lodge qra perhaps as a practice intercept against him uh, and all that would be done would uh, an intercept would be conducted. I remember doing one uh, against an, uh, an HS seven four eight British Airways, and we stayed with the aircraft and followed them all the way into their destination uh, on one of the Scottish islands. So you know it does happen. Uh, whether that word embellish uh, still uh, exists, I have no idea because it was like you know we're talking thirty years ago that I did my. Uh, I was in the Air Force doing this regularly, so I have really no idea whether that is still current or not, or whether it's still practiced. But it certainly used to be, uh, and I've no reason to think that it wouldn't be now for practice. Uh, although, quite honestly, in these days of litigation and people getting upset about the slightest possible thing, I think less likely um, nowadays. Interesting. I didn't know that uh, that kind of thing happened. Yeah, we we used to do it regularly, so... And it was up to anyone. If anyone wanted to write embellish on their flight plan, then uh, they, they were offering themselves up as a target. Cool. Yeah. And uh, let's see. I, uh, question three. This one for the Boeing versus Airbus people. I got a wonderful Christmas present this year. Some time as in a sweat box simulator. Uh, got to be said, I was really excited until I read the small print. Quote, prepare yourself for a truly unique experience in a... Boeing, without the E, the way that Nick likes to spell it, <laughs> <Boy>. 737. <laughs> At this point, I considered putting the present in the bin, but then I thought of all the questions I would have had for, oh, he's doing that. I thought this is what actually it said, but apparently he, this is just the way he's spelling Boeing. Um, 
Okay. Uh, questions I would have for a Boeing pilot, such as what it was, is like to be uh, being stuck in the 60s. <laughs> How do you eat without a table? Okay. How many candles do you need to light up the flight deck? Oh, that is being rude now. And where do you keep all the coal for the engines? <laughs> yeah, and I wonder where all of this, uh, Alex got all this information in the first place, Nick. Yeah. I've never heard you say anything I've, similar I, to that. I absolve myself of all responsibility, I'm <laughs> sorry. That's in the small uh, print you'll find after the each show. <laughs> the list goes on. Um, let's see. In all seriousness, I will report back how it goes and compare my lands to when you guys visit visited visited them in London. But if people in the community have questions they want answered by a Boeing pilot, let me know. Any words of advice apart from not losing my leg on the trim wheel? Yeah. Watch that trim wheel. It can, uh, can be very painful. Uh, now, some of my favorite jokes I heard in 2018. Warning, they are all not kind to Airbus. Number one, what is the most requested item by Boeing pilots? The answer, a napkin, because it's so scary and messy flying a Boeing. Rimshot. Oh, I don't have my rimshot available here. Yeah, Let's it see. doesn't deserve one. Sorry. No, okay. Nice try, Alex. They got a weird yeah. shot. Uh, number two, did you hear about the bird strike on the A340-300? It was hit by the bird from behind. Okay. How far can you go with multiple engine failures? Answer, to the scene of the accident. I suppose there's okay. somebody in this world that might not have heard that one. Yeah. The purpose of a propeller <laughs> the purpose of a propeller is to keep the pilot cool. Proof? If you stop the propeller, you can see the pilot start sweating. Uh, Steph, is that true? Uh, it depends. Um, depends on where you are when that event happens. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. If you're parked, if you're in on the, the air. apron, <laughs> yeah. If you're parked on the apron, yes. no I problem. mean, you might start sweating because it might. Act, you're probably already sweating if it's hot outside. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, and his last one. Thankfully, thank you, God. Um, and I leave with you with what separates flight attendants from the lowest form of life on Earth? Bada bing, bada boom. The cockpit door. Uh, okay. Can we, can we put him on the blacklist now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you see something from Alex, just put it in the trash like you were before. Yeah. yeah <laughs> just keep <laughs> doing it there. That one slipped through. How did that one <laughs> slip through? <laughs> um, what's the uh, difference between a flight attendant and a jet engine? I know the answer. I'm going to keep my mouth shut, though. I think I should probably not answer. Either. Something about whining. <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> the uh the uh the jet engines stop whining when you get to the gate. Ouch. Do bam. Oh, right. I have uh, a there we go. I've got a very yeah, similar very one about black boxes, but I can't tell it on air. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I get one I get a very similar one about washing machines and flight attendants, but I can't say uh, that yeah, one yeah, either. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so doing as HR, that. I'd like to move on. I'd like to thank Alex for his very wonderful Yeah, feedback. Thank you, Alex. Really. Thank We'd you. I like the questions and uh moving on. Okay. Well, this is going to be fun because uh, this is um, from a gentleman named Bruce. And he says, Dear Captain Jeff and crew, I'm sure that during this past year, you have been concerned over the health 
of your fellow aviator and captain, namely Captain Jerry. Oh, right. We have been. We haven't heard from Captain Jerry. How did you know, Bruce? Yeah. He emerged from his coma last month just as his coma fund ran out. (laughs) (laughs) Good timing. (laughs) I didn't know there was a coma fund, but apparently Jerry has one of those. And uh, anyway. Um, now back at Alpha Airlines and still on the left seat, he is pursuing his goal of educating us in everything concerned with aviation, just as you attempt to do. <laughs> Thank you. I've sent you a recent clip from his podcast. Purely coincidentally, I'm a voice actor and have included my profile webpage with this feedback. And we'll put this in the show notes. Because, oh, I, uh, I've had to listen to his profile and I'm going to have some fun with that. Oh, no. Yes. So uh, Bruce Bowden, he, uh, I'll have all the information in the show notes, and you can check out Bruce. He's a wonderful voice actor, but it has nothing to do at all with Captain Jerry and Captain Jerry's podcast. And he said he sent us an excerpt from it. And with that, I think we need to play it. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Go for it. Let's do it. Well, that was the U.S. Navy Pilots Archipelago Band, the Flying Crotchets not the most heavily funded of the military bands. Well, I'm Captain Jerry, and I'm back, out of my coma. I guess you found it all very difficult carrying on without me, right? Absolutely, Jerry. Extremely difficult. It was hard. So, Captain Vic, what have you been up to? Sorry, uh, up what have you been? No, what have you been doing? Well, Jerry, I've been convalescing with a nasty case of photographer's elbow, actually. Find it tough, huh, pushing that little toy joystick in your Airbus? Well, it's not the effort, Jerry, it's the position. So, how long has it been now since you've done a trip? Well, the last time was, let's see, um, August 2017. <laughs> so, recently, I've flown more than you, and I've been in a coma for a year. Yow! <laughs> well, actually, it's a, uh, it's a Swiss cheese model, isn't it, Jerry? All the holes lining up at the same time. Well, that's uh, some piece of cheese. And uh, now over to Dr. (laughs) Stefania, private pilot, skydiver, marathon runner, ex-black ops commando, and fizzy (laughs) sci-fi joint doctor. Now, Doc, some listeners have been writing in and said your marathon running is good cover for an assassin. You know, you're, you're in and out of a major city in a few days. You can lose yourself in a crowd of thousands. What do you think of that? Well, Jerry, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. That's, that's really funny, Doc. I'm not joking, Jerry. Well, uh, uh, well, is there uh, anything you can tell us? So last week, I performed a new procedure on one of my patients in conjunction with my colleagues. I jumped out of a plane with a patient strapped to my back, and my colleagues each got hold of one of her limbs and separated in different directions. I like to call it three-dimensional traction. Yow! So, did it work? Well, she can now cross her legs for the first time in ten years. <laughs> I think I can see your dog, Pop-Tart. Is that what you call him? That's him, Jerry. I call him Pop-Tart because he burned his lips on a Pop-Tart as a puppy. Well, I guess you, you don't eat those anymore. No, I've got a baguette at the moment with some Philadelphia on it. Oh, no. Did you say Philadelphia? I'm sorry, Danny. Yow! The <laughs> Patriots were supposed to come back. There, there, old chap. I'm sure your team will play properly next time. Stop the show. Stop the show. Turn it off. Wow. 
That's fantastic. Pop tart. Absolutely. Pop tart. That's the new name. The I'm so glad Captain Jerry is back. We really were concerned over the past year about he his health and well-being. He has got Steph's voice nailed. <laughs> exactly. awesome. oh, absolutely. The best of all. Yes. That was great. That was de- definitely worth the wait, Bruce. Yeah. Yes. So please uh, pass on to Captain Jerry that we um, we missed him and we want to hear more from him. And we thought uh, Fred <clears throat> was in the CIA, but it's actually Steph. Yeah, Good cover, Steph. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> any any resemblance to Dr. Stefania is I can purely neither coincidental, I'm sure. nor deny. Is that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you, obviously. So. <laughs> uh, Good, nice stuff. One. Good stuff. Nice one, Bruce. All right. Wow, that was fun. Um, Liz sent this. For us, and um, this was an interesting story. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to read all of it, but uh, we'll get the gist here. Um, act of bravery by four Swedish pilots over 30 years ago, finally recognized by the U.S. military after the entire incident was declassified. More than 31 years ago, the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union remained icy, and the Berlin Wall had yet to come down. U.S. Air Force pilots were engaged in secret reconnaissance missions aboard the legendary SR-71 Blackbird spy plane. Many of those flights occurred over international waters in the Baltic Sea. These sorties were known as Baltic Express missions. The SR-71 pilots would fly their aircraft at high high altitudes while gathering imagery on key Russian bases, such as the Soviet Navy's northern fleet on the Kola Peninsula from international airspace. During one such mission on June 29th in 1987, a Blackbird flown by retired Lieutenant Colonels Duane Knoll and Tom Veltry experienced an engine failure. The crew descended to roughly 25,000 feet over Swedish airspace, where they were intercepted by two pairs of Swedish Air Force Saab 37. Is it Viggen? Is that the way you pronounce that? Uh, You're muted. Yes, Jeff, that's exactly right. Viggen, thank you fighter jets. The Swedes were more than simply intercepting a wayward aircraft. They were offering defense from any opportunistic Soviets looking to harass an enemy spy plane on the Fritz. Given the tight corridor in the Baltic Sea, accidental airspace violations weren't out of the realm of possibility, and Soviet fighter aircraft might have been looking for any reason, however slight, to enter into an air-to-air altercation. This mission remained classified until last year, but with declassification has come official acknowledgement for services rendered. On November 28th in Stockholm, the U.S. Air Force finally presented four Swedish pilots with air medals for their actions back in 1987, according to a video of the ceremony posted by the Pentagon. Uh, let's see. We were performing an ordinary peacetime operation exercise, recalled retired Major Roger Moeller, one of the Swedish Air Force pilots. Our fighter controller then asked me, are you able to make an interception and identification of a certain interest? I thought immediately it must be a, an SR-71. Otherwise, he would have mentioned it. But at the time, I didn't know it was the Blackbird. U.S. Air Force Major General John Williams salutes the – oh, that's the uh, caption. Once the Swedish pilots intercepted the damaged SR-71, they decided to render support to the aircraft by def- 
defending it from potential third-party aircraft that might have tried to threaten it, according to the air, uh, the air metal citation. The pilots then accompanied the SR-71 beyond the territorial boundaries and ensured that it was safely recovered by American forces. I can't say enough about these gentlemen, said Veltri, one of the SR-71 pilots who was at the ceremony. I'm so amazingly grateful for what they did, but also for the opportunity to recognize them in the fashion we are doing. What these guys did is truly monumental. Noel, the other SR-71 pilot, was not able to be at the ceremony. However, he recorded a message which was played to those in attendance. Uh, and here's a quote. Your obvious skills and judgment were definitely demonstrated on this or that fateful day many years ago. I want to thank you for your actions, Noel said. And uh, it goes on. But uh, anyway, uh, very interesting story. And that's one of those things in the world of military aviation that uh, a lot of the stuff that goes on is classified. And, you know, it's just got to be a certain amount of time before this stuff becomes declassified. And then, you know, can you imagine doing something like this that these uh, pilots did for – uh, our SR-71 crew that really they couldn't tell anybody about and nobody could, you know, give them the, the honor and uh, respect that they deserve. Yeah, it's a lovely story, isn't it? And these yeah. guys, uh, you know, obviously knew their job and they uh, they did it to the best of their ability and my uh, hat's off to them. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just great. Yeah, it's story. always nice to see them, you know, getting the recognition that's due, even right. if it's however many years after the fact. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, as, as Nick mentioned, you know, as if you're a member of the military services, you know, you, you should expect that you're not going to be um, recognized for, you know, things that you, this is just what you do. You know, it's your, your, it doesn't mean there. it's not nice. When but, it does yes, it though. is. Ob- I agree with you so much. It's, <laughs> uh, it's so much nicer to actually get recognition for, you know, above and beyond. Um, yes. yes. Yeah. The that about it, the guys out there in uh, in Sweden and Norway were much closer to the threat than we were, so uh, they were obviously uh, much more on edge. And uh, it's nice that they uh, were able to give assistance. Sorry, Dana, go ahead. No, I was I was just going to comment and say it's it's amazing. You know, people can make make choices in life, and, and their choice was to you know, put life and limb in in in, uh, in the way of harm, possibly. Uh, and that's really commendable of them. And, and what Jeff just said, I, I absolutely agree. You know, they don't do it for the glory. They don't, uh, you know, military members out there, uh, you know, they, they serve their respective country with dual, with with the honor and uh, commitment and, and don't always get the recognition they deserve. Well said. Very very well said. Okay. And then uh, finally, in our news folder, we have this from James. I don't think it's from James Balch, though. Is it a different James, I believe? James Graves Brown. Oh, James Brain. <laughs> James Graves Brown. And uh, let's see. He sent a link to an article from avweb.com. And it says a fledgling California airline says it's canceling flights until further notice because of a shortage in pilots. California Pacific Airlines began service to and from its base in Carlsbad, California in November with four 50-seat ERJ-145s and was plagued with delays and cancellations shortly after it launched. Shortly after it launched. In one case, a plane was damaged when it was hit by a backhoe on a ramp in 
Pierre, South Dakota, but other cancellations were blamed on mechanical issues. In late December, the airline announced it was canceling all flights until it could get more pilots hired and trained. The airline's reservation website shows no availability through the end of February. Airline officials told the NBC San Diego affiliate that the company hoped to resume service in February. Those who have booked flights in January will get refunds. The airline lists its destinations as Las Vegas, Phoenix, Reno, and San Jose with one-way fares starting at about $100. So, you know, just more evidence that the, uh, the pilot shortage or lack of people willing to do this job for the money and benefits that are being offered are um, affecting uh, some of these smaller carriers. I mean, I, th- I think it's, I mean, this is, again, a, a great opportunity for, for those that listen to the show to realize, unless it's a major, uh, major world event, the shortage is going to continue to uh, broaden. And I think if you've ever uh, thought or considered or have been considering a career change in going out there to live your dream. This is just the beginning of the iceberg. So I, I really think uh, if you want to go for it, go for it, uh, and don't live with regrets because this is this is this is an extreme example. I think I think it's may may be an extreme uh, reaction, especially for a, an airline that is. Not so mainline, more you know, or you know, even a regional. But you know, what I'm talking about is is that they're not a very well well known carrier. Um, but I I think this is this is just a telltale sign that it the opportunities are there. Just go ahead and pursue it. Yeah, in the case of this company, it may have been more about their general business plan and you know their their root network <laughs> that kind of thing. Well, it's hard. I mean. It's not easy to start an airline, mm-hmm. especially a, a small one and a startup. And mm-hmm. yeah, and of course, it's, and of course, it's very easy to to blame defenseless people that can't really defend themselves. Right, yeah. so it's easy to point the finger at the pilots. <clears throat> yeah, we you know, we can't find any good pilots to fly our airplane, so yeah, exactly. you know we're having troubles. We're gonna have to shut down for a while. So. Hmm. But the the an airline of that size isn't going to be able to offer very good terms. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it, so hardly surprising they're not finding people. Oh, but what's amazing, 10 years ago, people would be clamoring for these jobs. They would, oh, of course, everybody yeah. Everybody would be beg, beg borrowing. Yeah. Yeah, beg borrowing and stealing just to get a job like this. Now, most people are turning their noses up at it. You know, this is yeah. just this is just a very small example. Uh, you, know, if we, you, you know, you look at all segments you know, you get the the the, the better known regionals that are known to be uh, not such great places to work. You get you know classes that are going completely unfilled, or very few people showing up. Uh, e- even some of the larger airlines, uh, you know, their people are being more selective as to whether they show up for class or not. Um, it's 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 definitely out there. It's definitely an issue. So. Uh, you know the main the mainline carriers. I don't think they're gonna they're gonna feel it for a while yet, but it, it's certainly affecting the uh, the throughput of people coming up from from other avenues. Yeah, as we always say, it's all to do with or a lot to do with timing, and uh, the timing is just not right for a startup such as California Pacific Airlines. But what the timing is right for is for us to 
close the show. And uh, so I'll do that by saying, if you want to learn more about our crew, about the community, which is the best part of all of this, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com. And we have apps for your iPhone and Android devices. Just go to your app stores and put in a search for Airline Pilot Guy. They're free apps and ad-free. Great way to engage with the show and the community. And we're also on social media. We are. You can head over to Twitter. And our handle there is at APG Crew. Individual information pinned to the top of the page. You can also head over to Facebook. Facebook.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. All kinds of good stuff going on there. Uh, folks who are part of the community, interested in the show, sharing news stories and items of interest. And... I will pass it over to Hillel for Slack. Hillel, come on out. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra, Lima, Alpha, Charlie, Kilo, at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, one one Echo 1, and see you in Slack. And a big uh, round of applause and thank you to our producer, Liz Piper. Yeah, hooray! For uh, helping us organize this whole thank thing and keeping this thing running. Thank you, Liz. We couldn't do it without you. And finally, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Adios, muchachos. Good day.